Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Happy Fourth of July if you're in the United States. Happy Independence Day. I uh, hope yes. you guys all had a safe and uh, happy Fourth yesterday. And uh, ha happy belated Canada Day. It was July 1st was Canada Day to everyone. <laughs> to my American friends and my American friend, Chase. <laughs> yeah, plenty of, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of Canadians that listen, but uh, be that as it may, it's another DC spotlight. A lot of books to talk about. We're going to dive right in. Not, not really too much DC news that I can think other than the fact that somebody, some, some genius at Discovery Warner Brothers decided that not only no DC booth at San Diego Comic-Con, like we know last San Diego Comic-Con in 2019, there was no DC Comics booth. They merged it with the WB booth, and I thought it was a disaster, to be honest. Um, it was a terrible decision. Uh, but that giant behemoth of a Warner Brothers booth is not even going to be there. That's right. No Warner Brothers or DC booth at San Diego Comic-Con. It boggles the mind. Like I get that Discovery is still trying to figure things out and, you know, Obviously, Warner Brothers, AT&T, very in debt, but not because of DC Comics, right? From the well, S9. I, I heard, Jace, that it costs $25 million for DC and more to set up a booth every year at San Diego Comic-Con. I heard the price tag is $25 million. That is complete. <laughs> that's what I heard with, with all their celebrities bullshit. and everything else. I heard it was that. That's what it cost them. No, there's no, no way in hell. <laughs> Nobody spends $25 million. That is r absolutely ridiculous. To put on the whole convention is is only about $100 million from my understanding. Now, it may have gone up in recent years, and we know you know, the Comic-Con organization <laughs> itself, which is not for profit, hasn't had any money coming in. But that is ludicrous to say it costs that much money. It's nowhere near that. And even if it, it did was, sound high, it did sound high, but I thought, well, because I, I had no idea. I thought, well, why no. would anybody set up if it's that, if it's that much exactly. money? That is, that is ridiculous. Like you got to think of the amount of money that's spent to promote these films and, and whatever. It's part of the marketing budget, mm -hmm. but there's very few movies that spend $25 million for the, their marketing budget, 5 million, you know, maybe. So there's, yeah, it's, 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 I don't think it's, possible in any way and it's not like they're paying these celebrities hey you know you're in our cw tv show you're in our dc uh, movie we have to pay you extra money to come to the show no do they have to pay for the airfare and the hotel yeah that's a couple thousand dollars it's not a big deal right it's in their contract it's in your contract when you sign on to do a tv show or do a movie well, it, it it definitely makes one think. What you know, uh, if, if cost isn't an issue, then why why wouldn't they have a presence? It's kind of it's just kind of depressing, you know. It it, it you it's know. extremely depressing, and 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 I'm not saying that cost doesn't figure into it. Yeah. So maybe it's you know a couple, maybe it's a million dollars. Let's say let's even go extravagant. And say it's two million dollars. They don't want to spend two million dollars, but honestly, what is two million dollars to a, you know a company like AT and T? It's it's nothing. Mm. It's nothing. But again, my understanding is Discovery is the one that made the uh, call. I still think they're trying to get a handle on things. It's like herding cats. But yeah, it, it's any way you slice it, it's a terrible decision because this is the first time back in three years. It's the biggest con of the year. You need to have a presence there. You need to you know, be excited. It, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to stay optimistic, but we've talked about it before with no Dan Didio, with no Dan Didio-like person to kind of be the cheerleader for DC Comics. Yeah. And they have a number of panels, 
but I, I just think it's at the end of the day, it's right now DC Comics is a rudderless ship. And if there had been somebody like Dan Didio, like I guarantee you that if Dan was still in charge, there would be DC would have a bigger presence at the show. Would they have a booth? Maybe they'd have a small, you know, just a small booth, something, not the big behemoth. Uh, you know that Warner, the Warner Bruce, Warner Brothers booth was, which again mistake to combine them, and this is exactly the reason. Did the Warner Brothers booth cost a lot more to set up and man and maintain and have events than the DC booth? Yeah, the Warner Brothers booth, the, the Warner Brothers Studio booth, probably cost three, four, five times what it costs just to run the DC Comics booth. So it never should have been combined to begin with, because you can still do just the DC booth for a relatively small amount of money. You know, you're, you're not having to put on this giant Hall H panel because the Warner Brothers booth is there and it got all these signings and it's logistically much more of a challenge. At the end of the day, as much as you and I love comics, we know that, you know, comic book writers doing a sign at the DC booth doesn't clog up the aisles. They don't have to have extra security and all that kind of stuff. That's just a reality. If Jim Lee's there signing, Scott Snyder, you know, some of the bigger names at DC in recent years. Yeah, there's a line, but it's it's not the logistic nightmare that you get when the cast of the Suicide Squad, you know, Will Smith and everybody else is there signing at the WB booth. And you got tons of security around telling people to keep walking because it's literally wall to wall people in the aisles and you can't move anywhere. That's just the reality of the situation, whether it's whatever, Wonder uh, Wonder Woman with Gal Gadot or or whoever, right? It's just a nightmare. So you should have never put them together in the first place. Mistake number one. Now you're not even going to go because you've got this giant booth that you don't want to set up. Like it's just one bad decision after another. And again, rudderless ship, nobody's making decisions with the best interest of DC comics in mind. They're all thinking about the larger picture and it's the comic fans who suffer. Like it's this show. I mean, there's a lot of other things I could get into about uh, San Diego Comic Con that are going to be different this year. Again, it's growing pains. Maybe it'll return, you know, more to normal next year. It'll get another year removed from the pandemic. I don't know, but uh, it 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 boggles my mind that there's no there's no DC booth, there's no Dark Horse booth. Like it's just it's going to be a really strange show. Plenty of DC creators that are going to be there, but you know, if you're a fan, where do you see them? They have no signings. You know, you yeah. go to their panel and hear them talk, and but that's not really. I mean, that's fun, but it's not. You know, a lot of fans, they love that. They want that face-to-face. They want that personal interaction. And it it just, again, it boggles my mind. So I didn't mean to get that deep into it. Let's go ahead and dive into the comics. Uh, We'll kick it off with Batman Beyond, Neo Year number four. This is written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Max Dunbar is the artist. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, Ended with a cliffhanger last time. We know that Batman Beyond, Terry McGinnis, had been lured into this kill box as it were and the gotham city artificial intelligence this sentient gotham city we find is is <laughs> kind of like a page out of the matrix anybody can be a weapon for gotham city uh it can create kind of this holographic technology this hard light technology that armors up and provides a, a like energy sword to whoever it wants to who's ever a citizen of the city and basically take them over and, and use them as sort of a meat puppet, for lack of a better term, to fight against Batman Beyond. So it's a pretty interesting concept. We see Terry, he uh, he's really on his last legs here, using the last little bit of energy from 
uh, his costume to the point where the costume's so drained it's it's actually using Terry's body heat at one point to generate um, enough energy to walk around in. And eventually Terry defeats this hard light construct and realizes that it's this old man uh, who's being used in this way and makes his way to the uh, the apartment of the police officer that he met uh, last issue, Beam Boonma, and thinks that she's smart enough to not have any technology, uh, Loomis technology around that will uh, allow him to be safe. But of course, he should have known better, right? Even though she doesn't maybe overtly have any Lumos tech around, the city itself is still able to take her over. Again, creates the hard light construct, and he ends up having to battle against her. Um, uses her taser, and that's sort of the weakness. Apparently, an electrical current can kind of disrupt uh, whatever broadcast ability the city has that uh, allows it to take over these uh, these other citizens. So. He does win the battle, um, and she's not fully recovered, but it's a great scene by Max Dunbar as she goes flying out the window, and Terry manages to uh, basically get underneath her with a suit that doesn't even work, although it's still armored, uh, and and uh, kind of cushion her fall. And uh, I love the, the, th- the through line throughout the entire story as Terry's thinking about everything he's lost, uh, having lost Bruce, but talking about what Bruce always did what Bruce thought was most important as Batman, just that you stand, right? That you show that you're going to resist. You show that you're going to fight. Uh, you show that you, uh, no matter how many times you get knocked down, you get up, you know, uh, that classic line from uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, you know, why do we uh, fall down so we can, you know, stand up again. So hmm. Terry says uh, he gets her, uh, he, he, he gets uh, officer Boonma and he's going to take her to a place that's safe. Um, because it is also still standing and it's barely standing as he stands uh, as the uh, final page. We see he's standing outside the gates of Gotham Manor. And yeah, it, there's a, there's a couple walls still standing. Um, and uh, it says next, you can never go home again. I do sort of wonder it talks about how hard it was for him to even walk. He's in this heart of the city. He has no power. He's got a wounded woman that he's carrying. Uh, but yet somehow he walks all the way to, the manor. I mean, it's a little thing. It doesn't really make sense, especially if he's, you know, one of the most wanted individuals in Gotham city that he could walk all the way out of Neo Gotham to Wayne Manor <laughs> yeah. carrying her in a suit that has no power. Um, but whatever. Uh, I mean, it's comics, right? But I, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought the art was solid, especially um, during uh, all the action. There's a lot of fights in this one, a lot of action. So, yeah. Um, again, I, I mean, I echo what I've said before about the story. It's by far the most interesting and uh, most compelling Batman Beyond story I've ever read. So, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, I'm. Uh, I love. I love Max Dunbar's art. I think it's. Uh, I think it's really good. Uh, what what uh, what I notice is um, I think I'm not just. I think your volume might be a little high on your end. I'm just getting some feedback here. But uh, in any event, uh, this reminds me a lot of The Matrix, that the fact that The Matrix uh, and I'm not a big fan of The Matrix movies. I'm not a big fan of The Matrix movies. So uh, I always found it a little bit hard to understand. But this is relatively straightforward. The city, I guess you and I were talking earlier that the, the, the name of this villain is, in fact, uh, 
Gotham City itself. So it's a little odd to me that the villain doesn't have a name. I find that a little off-putting. I, I'm not really sure who the bad guy is. Uh, well, I mean, I know it's the city of Gotham. And now anybody, I don't know how he can escape. I'm not sure he can, how he can escape uh, the city of Gotham when he literally, literally, no matter where he goes, there's somebody around or there's some electronic equipment or there's some camera around that can see him. So I'm not sure how he can get around. I'm, I'm not sure what edge he has. I'm not sure how he can combat this. And that, so that's what's piqued my curiosity a little bit to maybe stick with the, stick with the series moving forward. Cause I'm not really sure exactly how he can combat this. Cause I asked, you know, your question is very sound. Like how on earth does he, even avoid being detected on any any metric here the odds are so completely against them and um yeah i it's and the next 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 issue is uh you can never go home again and i'm you know i i think this is a little bit tropey the the plot line here but you know uh i hope i i want this playing field needs to be leveled a little bit. I, I want him to have, because the odds seem to be so much against him here that it's it's just, I don't know how on earth he can, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, wow. He's, he, he's the entire series against him, technology, everything. So that, that's one thing that stands out in the storyline for sure. But it's all right. But it's just, this week is, is so filled with great comics that this one just, uh, you know, kind of slipped, slipped by me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it was the first book I read. It definitely stood out for me because, um, again, I've never been that interested in Batman Beyond. I just like I like this um, I like this feel that they're giving it of Terry really being all alone. You know, it harkens back to a more classic Batman when he didn't have the Bat family with like seventy five different characters to back him up, uh, and yeah. I think that's what I like about it. So. Anyway, let's move on. Next up is DC versus Vampires number seven, written by James Tynan and Matthew Rosenberg, art and color by Otto Schmidt, lettered by Tom Napolitano. This is issue seven of 12. Um, and yeah, we've talked a, a lot about how much DC versus Vampires content there is now. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, sorry, Miss Grab. Well, uh, it's uh, we, we talked before. We reviewed DC Va v Vampires uh, Killers last week, and it was revealed that uh, Harley Quinn is has the injected herself with the blood of Lex Luthor, and the blood of Lex Luthor can apparently kill the vampires. This is the the main series of DC versus Vampires issue seven out of twelve, and this sort of uh, picks up because since issue six we said we've had sort of a hiatus, and we've had two one shots. We've had DC Killers and. DCV Vampires Killers, and there was another one that I missed. And in any event, this one is a little bit out of order because apparently there's going to be a DC Vampires that comes out at the end of July, near the end of this month, that actually takes place before this one, uh, which is kind of interesting, but it shows some editorial, some delays, which I don't think are necessarily helping the dialogue. But uh, in any event, the story here is interesting uh, enough. We have, uh, I like, I like uh, Tinian and Rosenberg's uh, use of, use of the B-list and C-list villains again. I really, I, 
I enjoy that aspect of it. I love the I love the fights. I love the fact that I never know who's going to live and who's going to die. I mean, it's, it, and I love the fact that there's actual consequences. And some of the comic books we'll be discussing this week, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna complain about a little bit and rant about a little bit because there, I just don't feel that there's enough consequence and too many DC store too many comic book stories lately. Uh, because in any event, uh, suffice to say, DC v Vampires it is fun. Otto Schmidt's art, I'm really enjoying it. I like the fact that uh, we, we, we start off here. Uh, it, it gives us a hint of what happened with Superman. Superman has been sort of converted into a vampire. We don't know how. We don't know how Wonder Woman and Green Lantern got Superman changed into a vampire. Superman's uh, uh, blood is powered by the sunlight. So I'm not sure how they could have converted Superman into a vampire when his blood essentially absorbs solar radiation. How do, and if you keep Superman in the dark and you depower him by keeping Superman out of the sunlight, then what's the point of having Superman around? Because he's not powerful if he's not powered by the sun, because all the cities were put into complete darkness and that the sun was essentially blotted out or the earth was blotted out from the sun. And so and and this earth was essentially taken over. And this entire issue shows so many battles between the remnants of the remaining heroes versus the vampire vampire league which is becoming increasingly powerful the battle the battle lines are really drawn here we see superboy ripped apart by shazam and wonder woman booster gold killed by blue beetle black canary defeats a bulleteer we got uh refugees uh, looking for a stronghold after their secret stronghold of of many of the cities uh, were destroyed and they're so they're looking for a, a rumored secret city where, where they can go to get refuge from all the vampires and uh there's a lot of great battles uh, battle lines that are drawn here we got director bones of the dea of the deo uh working with adam strange uh wild dog uh, uh killer frost negative man peacemaker and they're attacked by the vampires the vampire ver vampiric versions of plastic man hawk girl wonder woman firestorm and heat wave in some really epic battle raven gets in on it and she gets defeated by uh she gets defeated bitten by plastic man until finally we get to the end where you know because what what all these what all these uh, heroes, this this last holdout of heroes, uh, led by Director Bones. What they're what they're ultimately trying to protect in the trunk of this car is actually the uh, the sun deprived body of Kara Zor-El, who is of course Supergirl, but she's without her powers because she's been without sunlight for so long. And this this Jason character, and I'm not sure who this Jason character is. Is this a uh, I'm, I'm not sure what her actual code name is. Her name is Jason in the con in the comic. I'm not sure if, she, if what her actual superhero code name is. Um, but um, in any event, uh, they end up. Uh, who is that? That's Jana, not Jana. Sorry, sorry, Jana. Who is she? What hero is she? Zan and Jana, the Wonder Twins. J Jana, J A Y N A. Yeah, Zan and Jaina. We saw Zan get blenderized in the first issue. Oh, is that who that is? That's oh, okay. why she oh, wants perfect. revenge. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I, I thought it, it didn't look like her at all. Uh, but yeah, you're right. She does have purple on the thing. I, I completely miss that. I completely miss that. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a huge part of this. That's why she's so mad. She wants revenge because they killed her brother. 
yeah, so she's I, out there and she's killed 211 vampires. I missed that the hiatus and everything else. I completely I didn't know who who the character was. I thought it was a dub. I thought it was a holdout from the, uh, that was uh, actually it was one of my complaints. I didn't know who the character was. But now now that you're saying that, I see the purple in her costume. But uh, uh, yeah, if there hadn't been maybe a hiatus or maybe that's just a brain fart on my part. But that that makes a lot of sense. But she. Uh, it's pretty cool that the city that 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 I like Tinian and Rosenberg's imagination here because <laughs> she ultimately they she makes it to uh, what is ultimately a swamp and Killer Croc comes out holding holding a bottle city the bottle city of Candor and it's the bottle city of Candor is the secret city that is the secret place where they go to to hold out and and Ryan Choi the the, the Adam is there along with uh, Constantine and Green Arrow and Black Canary and they're all there and they they have they have they're going to be coming up with one last last ditch effort to try to get Kara into the sun so that she can become uh, powered up and then ultimately try to I don't know bring the sunlight back to the earth and then take out what's left of the, uh, take, take out the, the, the vampires. And somehow the, the goal is to get, they want to be able to somehow sneak into Gotham city where Dick Grayson is. And, uh, Barbara Gordon wants to kill Dick Grayson. And, uh, which is going to be quite the thing considering the fact that they <laughs> they're former lovers so i don't know if she'll be able to pull that off but she wants to kill dick grayson and she also uh and then ultimately if they end up doing that well uh, i guess they'll um, in order to, to in order to accomplish that they need information from harley quinn who at the very last panel uh, Harley Quinn seems to be experimented upon by uh, Hugo Strange and Brainwave and Mr. Pig, uh, along with Frankenstein, are experimenting on Harley Quinn, extracting spinal fluid from her and her blood, presumably to try to figure out why, what is it about her blood, which has Lex Luthor's blood in it, what is it about it that can kill vampires? And that's very interesting. We don't know how Harley Quinn ends up here because the last comic we read, uh, which was DC Vampires Killers, which was last week, uh, Harley Quinn was not captured. So, uh, But there is a comic book that's coming out at the end of July and it, it indicates it here at the beginning uh, which is kind of a, a blunder of DC editorial. I'm going to see if I can find the, the footnote. Um, Check out DC versus Vampires All Out War number one on sale 719. Yeah, All Out, yeah, all out War. So uh, presumably Harley Quinn gets two caught. Two weeks from now. Yes, yeah. But in any event... Uh, I enjoyed this. I, I enjoyed this. I thought it, I thought it was oh, I, I thought it was I thought it was uh, pretty cool. I liked uh, the, the firestorm. I, I liked how all the you know the various fights. White Wild Dog takes out Plastic Man. Wonder Woman kills Peacemaker. Raven takes out Heat Wave. <laughs> Hawk Girl takes out Negative Man, and uh, Firestorm uh, creates a nuclear explosion that ultimately takes out Director Bones, but uh, he barely survives. And then Janna, I guess, of uh, the the Wonder Twin. Thank you. <laughs> Her role is, uh, is is pretty cool now uh, that I that you. Uh, corrected my brain fart so i i i've been enjoying this i just wish it was i think it was i wish i wish the timing of the comic books coming out was a little bit better and we we didn't have this hiatus and i just wish there wasn't these delays but uh i can't uh 
I'm, I'm making a pretty bad excuse for for my memory. Uh, I can't blame it on the delays, but uh, maybe it's just reading too many comics. But uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it, I, and I love the. I continue to like the art by Otto Schmidt. What do you think? Well, it's not. It's not my favorite art from Otto. I'm a big fan of his, but this is messier than his usual uh, art. Which you know, maybe maybe that's purposeful because it is a bit of a darker story. I sort of think it's because he's, you know, handling art and colors on his own. And um, he probably was ahead and is now behind, thus, you know, the lateness of some of these issues. Um, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot to, to draw and color all of this, especially when there's so many characters. So um, I don't hold it against him that this isn't, you know, the, the cleanest art of his. Uh, I agree with you on on kind of the timing. I, I don't know is it a, an issue with auto take, taking a little more time or needing a little more time we we've talked before i won't belabor the point about how this is starting to sprawl a little bit and how we kind of wish it was just all wrapped up in one book you know um mm-hmm. whether that means you need to bring on another artist you know maybe auto does three issues somebody else does three issues um i go back to when green arrow had uh, was coming out twice a month. We had Otto Schmidt on some issues. We had Stephen Byrne on some issues. We had Juan Ferrer on some issues. They're, they all color themselves and their styles are all similar enough that it's not jarring. So that could have been a way to go. Although I think Juan Ferrer is over at Marvel right now, but I don't think he's exclusive. Um, not sure what Stephen Byrne's up to. So that would have been a way to go. Uh, because again, you're getting these issues um, or these problems, I should use that word, not to confuse it with an actual issue of a comic, but these problems where, yeah, we get a footnote in this comic. Oh, something that happened actually in the past, something that happened prior to this, the story in this issue, but we can't read about it until two weeks from now. That's, you know, that's a problem. You mentioned it yourself at the end, Harley Quinn is being experimented on, maybe being tortured, but the last we read about her, she's got the blood of Lex Luthor and is the last hope for humanity. So, you know, we're getting all this DC vampires, content coming out but it it's not in any sort of order you know it's not in any sort of chronological uh release that makes sense yeah so unless tom king's taken over editorial who never likes to tell a story you know linearly there's no reason for this so uh, again i have to wonder was this how it always was planned to be um because i gotta say when this issue when the series kicked off first couple issues it the pacing moved relatively slowly and it made it seem like it was going to be kind of an intimate self-contained story that took place over you know a couple of weeks let's say now you know each issue we're getting these giant time jumps um and now it's like this stuff's taking place over years i mean you look at some of these hellscapes some of these situations uh that were shown in this in this uh, issue with Superman being taken over. And then, you know, we got the Gotham city arc being shown and what looks to be Batman hanging upside down and, you know, darkest before the dawn, the big splash page. And, you know, we're told in, in very quick, just uh, caption boxes about how, yeah, I mean, so much time's gone by. Our leaders were told uh, that a plague was coming and don't resist and you know nobody listened and everybody died you know it's 
and it's like how we don't even know how much time has gone along. So all of a sudden it's gone from what feels like a, a slower paced, intimate contained story to this very fast paced sprawling story. And we're just peeking in at different points on the timeline, but not even peeking in, uh, in order, you know, to go back to what I was saying before, it's like, Oh, let's take a look at how things are five years down the line. Oh, but let's go back six months before that with the next issue that comes out. And then let's jump forward seven years. And uh, it just, just tell the story. <laughs> if it's a good story, just tell the story, tell it in order and, you know, let us decide if we like it or not. But yeah. this jumping around makes, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're making it harder to consume. You're making it harder to read. You're making it hard, harder to understand. And that, if there's not a, um, like a compelling reason to tell the story out of order chronologically, then don't do it. You're just making it harder. Comics have a hard enough barrier to entry as it is. You know, now you, you decide to come out with this property, DC versus Vampires, which somebody can jump onto this thing from issue one and you don't need to know anything that's going on with Flashpoint Beyond or Dark Crisis or Batman or Superman. You don't need to know anything that's going on in the main DC universe in terms of continuity. This stands alone. You can make it very easy for new readers to jump on. So make so keep it easy. Why all of a sudden are we getting all these one shots that are out of order? It, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I, I think it's a very bad call who's ever making the call over there yeah. it's a bad call to to make this more complicated than it needs to be if you're trying to grow your readership if you're trying to put out evergreen stories then you know make it as easy as possible for people to follow along now i'm sure when this all gets collected in the hardcover or what have you that they'll put those one shots where they should be chronologically so if you're going to do that anyway then release them that way don't make it harder for people, especially new readers. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's weird that well, then you'd have 14 instead of 7 of 12, you'd have 7 of, I guess, 14, or I guess this would be technically well, 9, I mean, or 9 of 14. On, <laughs> we wouldn't be on 7. We'd be on 10. We've had three one-shots so far. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, you know, or don't even put a number on it. Just say issue 10, you know, finish telling the story. Yeah however many issues it yeah takes, it's, so. it's it's frustrating it's frustrating but uh you know it, it you know it, the story is is decent enough but it's uh it would be it would it would read better if it came out in a little bit more timely manner and wasn't so confusing to unnecessarily confusing to readers but whatever yeah again there just doesn't That's, seem to be a, doesn't seem to be a reason for it now as far as the story itself you know i was never a big fan of it from the beginning and i you know i said as much but the saving grace was it again to, to repeat myself it felt small it felt self-contained it felt like it was going to be over relatively quickly as it's starting to sprawl more and more i'm liking it less and less there are aspects of the story that i think are fun but this isn't something i'm ever going to go back to like once it's done i'll be glad it's over and i won't go back to it um i won't get into the the glaring plot holes rocky has already addressed them um doesn't make any sense that superman could get turned He's not human, so why would the vampire curse affect him? It doesn't make any sense he'd have any power after he was turned because he can't be in sunlight. Like it, it, That makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. He's powered by sunlight, but he's a vampire. He can't be in sunlight. You've, you've ruined the character. So I, I, ridiculous. Supergirl, relatively the same way, but it seems like they're trying to turn that into a plot point. So mm -hmm. you know, whatever. I, it, to me, it just they've made the vampire so powerful – 
like in this fight where they're able to, I mean, if, if you, as a DC vampire, if you can convert Hal Jordan, if you can convert Wonder Woman, if you can convert Superman game over, like, you know, it's, it's the, it's the problem I have with Batman going up against Joker, you know, Batman would take Joker out because Joker doesn't have any physical abilities. Batman would take Joker out in 30 seconds. That's it. Game over. I feel the same way. These vampires are so powerful. If you're so powerful, you can take out Wonder Woman and Batman and Hal Jordan and Superman. Nobody's going to stand against you. It, it, war would have been over already, especially with Nightwing, one of the best tacticians in the DCU. Batman's gone. They don't. You don't have Batman. You do have Batgirl, but again, doesn't she, you know she's maybe out and out more intelligent than Bruce, but not tactically. So uh, it just this doesn't work for me. It just, it doesn't, it feels like, Oh, we had this cool idea. Vampires take, you know, versus the heroes of the DC you, except most of the heroes have been turned into vampires. I, I just, I don't know what the point of the story is. It, it, the novelty of it really wore off for me relatively quickly, certainly within the first six issues. So we get the big time jump here and yeah, interesting fight. I do probably my favorite aspect of the story. I do like the fact that, Jana is, you know, pissed off that her brother's been killed and she's become this really kind of hardcore vampire hunter, killed 211, as she said in her own words. Um, but even that comes with some issues, right? It, it, it's, it appears, it appears that when she pierces um, the vampire transformed firestorm, which again, how can you transform a being of energy into a vampire? Because that's what firestorm is, but We'll leave that alone for now. And it's it's proven that he's a being of energy because when he gets stabbed with a wooden stake, he explodes. It's a nuclear explosion. So clearly he's still made of energy in this continuity, but yet he can be turned into a vampire. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, she explodes him and it appears as though she is some kind of liquid and then reforms herself. Like the nuclear explosion kills you know, destroys cars and blows up all kinds of people, what have you. She's not the one that has water-based powers. That was Zan. Jane is the one that can turn into animals. So did I miss something when Jan... So, so Jan turns into animals or... Jan is Zan? the one that turns into animals and Zan okay. is the one that is the liquid, has the liquid powers. Yeah, yeah. So, it does look like she's turning into water. So that does seem like she a she reforms herself, right? Yeah. So unless... And, and maybe I'm forgetting, but when Zan got killed, his power reverted to her. I don't remember that happening. I remember her down in the – I remember the scene down in the sewer where she found a piece, what seemed to be a piece of her brother, uh, finger or whatever. Um, so, yeah, again, doesn't make sense. She should be dead also. Um, anyway, I, I, I just – I don't know. Too many plot holes. I'm not really digging it. Sprawling story. Maybe it's cool for some people. It is, you know, relatively easy to jump on and maybe overlook yeah. some of these plot holes if you're a newer reader. I, I think I think I would have enjoyed it more had it had the other if I read All Out War first, which is going to be in two weeks. Because you know, now having seen it, if I reread this, knowing that that's the Wonder Twin, like <laughs> I can't believe I had that brain fart. But I mean, I when she kills a 
if she killed 117 or whatever vampires, I'd kind of like to see that. That sounds kind of cool. Like I, I feel like I've missed this, these significant chapters. I can, I can almost see why they wanted to add these extra stories and chapters. But in a lot of ways, we had a significant plot development in in the in Harley, in the one shot last week. Uh, DC vamp vampires killers with Harley Quinn getting Lex Luthor's blood to have major plot points in the one shots that aren't even part of the series just seems like uh, extraordinarily boneheaded uh, decision uh, editorially to make but uh, in any event I mean hopefully hopefully it'll read better as a trade which I'm sure it will yeah and I go but go back to the art I mean again I'm normally a fan of Otto Schmidt but like why is his why does his Supergirl from on the same page the top panel, she looks regular, youngish Supergirl. Uh, but then the bottom of the page where she says the sun, she looks like she's aged 40 years. Like, why does she look like an old woman in that bottom right panel? Yeah. I, I don't get it. And then on the, the first panel of the following page, she's colored. Like, her eyes and her teeth are all yellow. Like, all of a sudden, she's got jaundice. Maybe <laughs> it's just our – maybe it's our – Press copy? Like I, I don't know. The again, just too many, too many things. Again, maybe I could overlook the art if I thought the story was real strong. Um, and I know I'm a fan of Otto Schmidt. I loved his work on um, on Green Arrow. We were a big fan of his work on Future State Catwoman. Yeah, but again, it just feels rushed. That's that's the only thing I can think is is why it's not up to his usual standard. So anyway, uh, yeah, safe to say I'm not really enjoying DC versus Vampires. So. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Poison Ivy number two. This is written by G. Willow Wilson. Art is by Marcio Takara, Arif Prianto on colors, Hassan Atman Elhau on the letters. Uh, and this is uh, another miniseries. Uh, although I don't know. Does it say? Yeah, it doesn't say. I think it's six issues, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, second issue. What do you think, Rock? Sorry, I got to find my notes. Oh, I never. Uh, yeah, this is one where I never took any notes on because there wasn't much to say. So, yeah, this is actually an easy one to review. I uh, first, uh, what an obscene amount of covers. Uh, cover A, then cover B, one, two, three, four, five. Five covers to choose from. And I have to say, uh, this is... Uh, Poison Ivy is going full bore supervillain here. By all me, by Jay Willow Wilson is making her an absolute supervillain. And I'm a little bit, uh, we all know that Poison Ivy is a little bit off her rocker. I mean, at the best of times, maybe, but at least prior to Fear State, before she became Queen Ivy, and she, she sort of had a dual identity there where Queen Ivy was more of the plant consciousness and, and Ivy herself was more of her human consciousness uh there was uh, she seemed to be more level-headed there even with that even with that uh, duality between queen ivy and ivy there seemed to be there's there seemed to be more reason there here she seems indifferent she seems sociopathic on the one hand I mean, it's, this issue starts off with she's in a cafeteria, you know, she's talking about and imagining her life with Harley. And then she's she's in this cafeteria in the middle of nowhere and uh, clearly getting there. She's been releasing these these Lamia spores, uh, which eventually are going to kill everybody. 
she she's at this uh, this cafeteria where and she's infecting everybody in the cafeteria and she talks about it very nonchalantly. These all people all have 24 hours to live, including this nice young waiter who's an Arab gentleman who is uh, he's appears to be the chef. He's cooking her some some food, uh, some, I guess, vegan or whatever, whatever. She's very picky on her food. And she's just frankly, uh, she's an absolute. I don't know if she's she's clearly a psychopath and yet she's not a psychopath because she does seem to have some endearment to this young juvenile delinquent that comes in and sits beside her who the police end up looking for uh and she she befriends her and starts talking to her and uh yeah it's just it's just glorified conversation and then she talks about her connection to the green and this is a poison ivy who this is a this is an ivy who is very much um she misses being queen ivy she misses the power that being queen ivy gave her and she wants she's out for revenge and she has a flashback at one point where she has a conversation where she's having a conversation with the gardener and uh, the gardener basically tells her uh you know this whole career crusade that you're on it's not about you saving the green ivy it's about your own rage and i tend to believe that this is an angry ivy but she's got repressed anger she seems to be repressing it while she's sort of being on the surface she appears to be a beautiful redhead sitting down in a cafeteria befriending meeting people and yet she's clearly brutally brutally murdering people and i'm not sure i don't like this ivy I don't like her. At the same time, I kind of want Ivy. I kind of like the evil side of Ivy. Ivy, but I'm I'm a little unclear. What exactly is is writer J. Willow Wilson going for here? We've 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 seen this poison Ivy before, who's out for revenge for the sake of revenge a hundred times in, in in standard Batman comics. This is not bringing anything new. This feels. Not, I hesitate to say it's a regression of the character, but it's an extremely predictable one. I thought they were moving toward some kind of uh, reunification or some uh, moving the love story forward with, between Ivy and Harley. This is Poison Ivy being just a complete, unlikable, pure psychopath with absolutely no redemptive qualities whatsoever. She's, and I'm, I'm not sure what. And I guess that's fine. I mean, she is a supervillain, I guess. But I, I, I thought that they were kind of going for the antihero element. I thought they were going to be doing something a little bit different here. But I guess I'm a little bit disappointed at just how almost surprisingly predictive predictable this is. She's just a straight up supervillain who wants to wipe out all of humanity for the green. And and the only people that are going to be alive at the end are going to be Harley and Poison Ivy so she can have her, you know, have a world with the green and her girlfriend, uh, another psychopath. It's just uh, I can't help but thinking this is an extraordinarily one dimensional. I, I'm, I'm disappointed in this where, where I see this going. I, I hope I hope this I really hope this changes course, but it doesn't look like it's going to. But I don't know. What am I missing? Am I do you, what do you think? I don't know what you're missing. Um I wouldn't go so far as to say it's predictable only because I don't think it's going to go where it seems like it's going to go uh, because I think G. Willow Wilson is a, a stronger writer than that because so far, yeah, I, I agree with you. So I have mixed feelings about it. I, as anybody, longtime listener of the podcast will know, I'm not a big fan when they turn villains into antiheroes or out and out heroes. And yeah, Poison Ivy's always been a villain and an interesting one. Um because she, you know she's not necessarily wrong when she says that 
you know, humans are detrimental to the world of plants. Uh, maybe the ends don't justify the means in terms of, you know, her killing people based on that. Um, so, you know, there's still the, the aspect of her that wants to get back to the more powerful version of herself that she was when she considered herself Queen Ivy. She had the green skin. It was always something that was kind of wonky with DC continuity. Sometimes she was Pamela Isley, Poison Ivy with, with you know, the flesh colored skin seemed less powerful. Then there was kind of the more detached, more uh, Queen Ivy kind of version. And then they finally made it um, an actual plot point. And it, what was it in Fear State when she got merged back together. And so there is a scene at the end of this with the gardener where the gardener's telling her, you're never going to be able to get back to that level of power that you had before. Ivy sure seems to want to not for the sake of the power itself, which would make her, you know, more two dimensional villain. Um, but for, uh, the sake of it allowing her to accomplish her goals more quickly. So it's so interesting because as she's reverting back to this, uh, you know, you, you said, is it walking back the character or, you know, a regression of the character? It remains to be seen, but it, this does seem to be a little bit more of a two dimensional uh, version of Ivy, right? And she was always one of the more complicated villains, like I said, because of what her motivations were. It wasn't to get rich and it wasn't just to have power, you know, it was her love of, of the plant world. So that always gave her a little bit more complexity. But as much as I say, I don't like it when. Uh, they move these villains more toward hero or anti-hero. I, I have to admit it. I with Ivy, it's been so long that I just started to identify with her that way. And so seeing her go back to f- full villainy again, I have mixed feelings because even though she was one of the more complicated, more interesting villains, I have to admit that her as more of an anti-hero or or her with the relationship with Harley Quinn which, you know, maybe you can say it's because of that relationship, because of her love for Harley, of why she wanted to, to do less evil, do less bad things, be seen, you know, as more of an anti-hero or be seen as less of a villain. So the heroes would leave her alone to pursue her relationship with Ivy. However you want to paint the picture, it made her more interesting. It made her a more complex character, a more fully realized character, a more realistic character. So... Yeah. There's part of me that goes, yeah, I like the fact that they're reverting her to a villain because she always should have been a villain. Um, but at the same time, like you're, you were saying, it, it is a regression in my mind in terms of it takes away some of the complexity of the character, her love for Harley wanting her to be a better person, basically. And the other part of this is, like you were mentioning, she is a psychopath. Like it's one thing to revert her back to villainy like – Hey, people, stop hurting the plant world. Stop polluting the planet. Stop, you know, ultimately harming yourselves by harming, you know, the the ecosphere of the planet. But she's taken it so far to an extreme that she's not um, she's not sympathetic at all. You know, she's infecting these people with spores. And the only uh, thing you can say in Poison Ivy's defense is that, well, at least when she kills the people, they die with a sense of bliss. Well, the people that are dead, honestly, really don't give a shit. That's not much of a uh, – Consolation. <laughs> consolation for them, right? Oh, sorry you're dead, but at least you died you know, with a sense of bliss. You're dead. It doesn't matter if you died in excruciating pain or with a sense of bliss or whatever. You know. So, yeah, I, I, 
again, I have faith in G. Willow Wilson. I think she's a, a very talented writer that this is going to, to switch. It's going to go a different direction. It's not just going to be psycho poison Ivy going crazy, but at the end of the day, we know that there are any number of Harley Quinn fans who are big fans of her and Ivy's relationship. And much like we saw recently uh, in Harley Quinn, where Stephanie Phillips, the writer, got really meta with the consequences of Harley Quinn's actions in the past. Poison Ivy, she's been distanced over the last few years from the bad things she'd done in the past. Now, even if you say, you know, flip this around and sort of redeem Poison Ivy by the end of this series, you still got to look at the first couple issues where the body count was very, very high. So how do you let her alone you know how do you give her that that freedom like i was talking about earlier to pursue this relationship with with uh harley quinn because based on the body count of the first two issues you should be locking her up and throwing away the key right so i mean from that aspect i mean i find the series interesting because it's raising a lot of questions now whether or not it works long term in in terms of continuity or makes sense for the character uh, or, you know, th- this bad thing she's doing here can be reconciled. That remains to be seen, but it's certainly raising a lot of questions and making me think about the character in a, in yeah. a different way. I, I will say uh, another way to look at it is maybe, maybe if I didn't know better, I would think Queen Ivy was, was winning, like was a consciousness that was winning over Ivy's consciousness, like that Queen Ivy is the one that's really the guiding consciousness right now, because this doesn't this doesn't feel like the traditional Ivy that we're we're used to. So maybe it is Queen Ivy that has more control, and uh, we'll I guess we'll have to wait and see. So, but great yeah. art, great art. Um, I really love the art, and I I'm, I I am intrigued as to where this is going. And I'm, I know from future solicits, I believe Harley Quinn makes an appearance, and Harley Quinn has always been someone that can pull Ivy back from the brink. She did in Fear State. She even did during Tom King's run. Uh, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see the role that that uh, Jay Willow Wilson has Harley playing in this narrative. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Takara's art. Never have been. Um, not dissimilar from Otto Schmidt's art in, th- in this particular issue. Uh, and it just it, It's just a little sketchy and feels a little unpolished, a little unfinished. So like... I can take a little bit of this style of art, but when, when it starts to be like, you know, book after book after book, it just, it just bothers me. It's not that clean DC style that I'm used to. So <laughs> the colors are very b- vibrant though. I think that the Arif Prianto colors are probably the best part of the art for me. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Suicide Squad Blaze book three. This is the final issue from Simon Spurrier, Aaron Campbell's The Artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Unfortunately, this is the third uh, book in a row where we have that same style of art that it's just, it's not clean. It's very sketchy. And again, I can handle a little bit of it, but like I said, when it's book after book after book of the same art style, it's like, I need, I need it broken up. (laughs) I need some clean art where I don't have to work so hard to try to figure out what's going on in the panels. Um, That being said, I also feel like this story, while it started off really strong, it kind of got a little tropey for me and a little kind of esoteric in a way. Um, you know, we start talking about feelings and uh, monsters and paras- uh, cosmic parasites that feel that feed off people's feelings of completeness and contentedness and happiness. 
So it gets, I mean, you're really talking about what, what, what is, what is content con, being content? What is happy? You know, these aren't hard and fast rules. You know, like if somebody is, I need to feed on human flesh or I need to feed on human brains for some particular brain chemical, or I'm robbing a bank cause I want money. Those are all concrete things, right? These ideas start to get really sort of abstract. And for me, while somewhat interesting, it, it loses, again, for me, the cohesion of the story, kind of the, the hook of what made it interesting. You know, we had the, the mystery of this alien, whatever it was, and, and why it was so powerful. It killed the Justice League. You know, that was interesting. But even though we learned the origin, it is, it is an alien. And it, it, again, the ideas get really sort of out there and abstract. And to me, it Ultimately, it keeps the story from fulfilling the promise that I think it had early on. And I, I think the art is not as strong in this particular issue. Again, part of that to do with the colors, actually. Um, a lot of times the colors are so bright and saturated that it overwhelms the line work and it makes it even harder to see what's going on. So, um, you know, typically I'm a big fan of Jordi Belair's art, but I it, it doesn't to me, this, this style of, of Aaron Campbell with the kind of colors that they chose to go with here, it just really didn't work. Um, the best thing that, that I can say about the entire issue is we get to see Amanda Waller get killed. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a nice moment. Yeah. And it, it did, it did finish the story. It, you know, it did finish it up, but of course in typical comic book fashion, or really any story at this point, they do it in movies, they do it in TV shows. Um, we get a hint that maybe it's not the last, you know, with the 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 guy at the end who takes the parasite within himself saying, oh, I'm hungry, as he's standing outside of reality looking at our earth. So, yeah, this ended up being just okay for me, which is a bit of a disappointment because the first issue I thought was really, really strong. Second issue, less so, and now this third, even less so. Um, so it's probably not something I would ever go back and read again. And ultimately for me, it didn't fulfill the promise of the, of the first issue. So it was only okay. What'd you think? Well, I actually thought that it was, uh, it was exposition heavy and it, you know, that's not, that's not for everybody. And sometimes, uh, you know, a, a lot of this was, uh, telling, not showing. And now Aaron Campbell did a good, I, I think, the, the nature of this story sort of cried out for some, I think the art was actually fitting for, for the type of esoteric nature of this story, because it is really deep science fiction here in that, I mean, this creature was ultimately, uh, was, was, it was revealed that it was ultimately twins. It was sort of like twin entered, twin creatures that loved each other, that were born as brother and sister, and their love was so strong for each other, but they were interdimensional beings. And of course, it was Amanda Waller, your favorite character, who along with the government, uh, they, they, they pulled this being to earth and they, and they, and they pulled the, these twins apart and they ended up intentionally killing one of the twins. Amanda Waller gave the order to intentionally kill one of the twins because they wanted to, they wanted to create another partner for the twin in order to siphon the power Power that this interdimensional creature had, and the sorrow created when this when this creature lost its twin sister, its twin half, that it, it flew into a rage and began destroying and attacking and ultimately killing all the members of the Justice League and so many heroes, all because of frankly Amanda Waller. So I, 
uh, even I, I really hate, I mean, Amanda Waller is someone I love to hate. I hated Amanda Waller in a genuine sense. And like you, I very much enjoyed uh, the fact that Harley Quinn literally literally severed half her face off here in a very graphic fashion uh, of course amanda waller stabbed harley quinn in the eye a uh, lot of graphic violence here the, the relationship between uh, tanya and the, the guy with the, the the other suicide squad member the guy with no arms i forget his name the, their love story and his he's such a flawed person this is just such a flawed couple this this three issue story is if i just to give Sysperior some some credit here this really is about really it, it, this is a story about love and toxic relationships. Love embodied the relationship between uh, Tanya and, of course, this the guy with the invisible arms, who ultimately he ends up betraying her and killing her, sacrificing her so that he can merge with this creature and ultimately kill it and become the creature himself at the end. Uh, but but throughout, it's it's this bond and, and the, the power of love and the power of love lost and how that can lead to vengeance by even these, that the love crosses boundaries even uh, on interdimensional creatures who are, are are literally bound and that uh there, there's there's that powerful theme there and then of course all, all the characterizations that Spurrier I thought did a good job between making me hate Amanda Waller more than I've ever hated her before and that's saying something and uh uh, you already hated her, so it was just icing on the cake for you. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean she she this this I mean the fact that you can make have Amanda Waller in the story make the choices that she makes to kill this innocent cosmic baby. Yeah. And nobody bats an eye because that's just Amanda Waller. That yeah. shows how despicable the character is. Yeah. Can't, she is a villain. Like, yeah. She's worse than Poison Ivy. Yeah, no, there, there's no question that, uh, and that's why I actually, uh, I thought this was well done. What I what I like about this Blaze story, this felt genuinely like a black, like a black label story. This is absolutely out of continuity because all the Justice League were killed; they're wiped out. I mean, you're left at the end with this 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 guy basically becomes this parasitic creature, and he leaves the Earth, and uh, leaves our reality. Well, exactly. Uh, but, but I mean, the point is, I actually like stories like this that we need these once in a while. Like, I like the fact that, I mean, everyone in Peacemakers killed. I mean, uh, you know, Killer, uh, Killer Sharp. Killer Shark, what the hell's his name? <laughs> yeah, Killer Shark. Yeah. yeah, Killer Shark. He's killed. I mean, they're all boomerang. He's taken off the playing field. Everyone is, and then and then um, Waller. And this was a genuine Suicide Squad. I mean, literally, it was just everybody actually died, and uh, and not in a way that you would expect because it wasn't their heads weren't blown off. They literally died gore, gruesome, gory deaths. Uh, Cy Spurrier. I mean, he he took the subject matter and he took it to its most gory, graphic, horrific conclusion here but amidst all this horror is a story about love and how it can corrupt how it can destroy and how love loss can destroy but how it how it can also ultimately it was love that saved the day uh and and it took a, a suicide squad member uh, a villain of all people to actually uh, save humanity uh despite the loss of the entire justice league and half the heroes in this particular earth somewhere in the omniverse but uh no i i, I enjoyed this overall and i i thought that the sort of very stylistic illustrations uh uh were actually contributed uh to the to the type of story that was uh being told so kudos to uh aaron campbell on the art because I, it worked for me yeah i mean as much as i didn't care for the art in terms of 
you know, as the, the squad gets smaller and you know, that's something that happened throughout. They gave these squad members superpowers. I think there was five of them to begin with. And as each of them gets killed, their power gets transferred to the remaining till you end up with one guy who has the power of all five. Hmm. Um, and once the fourth one was killed, and there was only three left. They were like glowing all the time. So as much as it made it kind of hard to see what was going on, it, it was an interesting effect. And I just wonder if, if a different uh, line artist had done it, if I would have liked it more. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have Black Adam, the Justice Society files Hawkman number one. So DC announced last month or maybe the month before that in anticipation of the Black Adam movie, they were going to do a series of one shots called the Justice Society files uh, about various characters in the movie. This one is the Hawkman one shot. It's written by Kevin Scott. Scott Eaton handles the pencils. Norm Ratman on inks. Andrew Dollhouse on colors. Rob Lee on letters. What do you think? I actually uh, this was I normally do not buy these comics. Any I, I very rarely buy or or concern myself with prequel comics to superhero movies. Uh, I just because I find generally that they they don't add a heck of a lot of substance to it. But I actually find found myself oddly uh, interested in this, and uh, I thought this was actually quite well done. Uh, first, I got to say that the the covers here are fantastic. Uh, cover A. Uh, first, let me let me let me make a joke about the title black adam the justice society file black adam colon the justice society files colon hawkman number one that's a long title <laughs> but whatever it works we got we got of uh dwayne johnson on the uh, as uh black adam on the cover along with uh i don't know the actor's name playing hawkman but he's he's an amazing amazing looking uh hawkman and the artist in here um uh miller uh, Kevin Scott's the writer, and uh, Miller is the artist. Does a really, really uh, no, Scott Eaton. Is Scott, Scott Eaton? Is the, yeah. Oh, okay, I'm just looking. So there up. is, yeah, there is a back. There's a backup, and that's where the name Miller comes from. I was going to give the credits for the backup when we talked about the backup, but I'll go ahead and do it now just to yeah. avoid any confusion. Sure. Yeah, there is a backup. Um, it's Lost and Found, Chapter One of Four, and my th my thought is this Lost and Found because it's Chapter One of Four because the lost and found backup is going to run throughout all four of the one shots. So that's the backup is written by Brian Q. Miller. Marco Santucci handles the art, at least in this issue. Uh, Michael Latea, his longtime collaborist uh, is on colors and then Rob Lee's on letters. So yeah, Scott Eaton is actually the artist uh, for the, uh, the first main story. Yeah. And uh, thank you for that. And yeah, the, the, the main, uh, the main story itself, uh, it, I thought what was interesting is that it sets up, uh, this is Carter Hall. I'm assuming his last name is Hall because uh, it just it was, he's just called Carter as far as I could tell. But he's he's basically, he, he, he works for a museum and he, and he is kind of like the Indiana Jones type. So he's a lot like the Carter Hall in the comic books. Uh, of course, he's, he's African-American and uh, he's, a, he's a pretty cool character. And he's actually at uh, an... Uh, uh, an an elements exhibition where he's showing up for an elements exhibition. He's got a friend, uh, one of his friends who works alongside him is there. And this, this elements exposition is, has on display various uh, elements that came and arrived on earth through a meteor or through how somehow through unknown means arrived on earth. And so we have kryptonite in this exposition. We've got nth metal and we have this brand new metal called Eternium, uh, which 
uh, or it's called Eternium, which and it's in the shape of a sh- of Captain Marvel's lightning. And now it's it's of unknown origin. It dates from twenty six hundred BC or some such supposedly cursed uh, story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I don't, to my knowledge, I, I remember we have a lot of medals in the in the mainstream DC universe, and this is of course a movie verse, Dwayne Johnson's Black Rock movie verse. Whether or not this is the Snyder verse or an offshoot, whatever the heck this is with Black Adam, we can. I'll speculate as exactly what's being incorporated in it, but um, we, this Eternium is a very powerful source of energy that can be used to power spaceships, and presumably is is even more as powerful as Nth Metal. And Nth Metal, of course, is the metal that uh, that Hawkman uses to help him fly, and it has various uh, various properties that to, to, that can give powers to people who yield the the Nth Metal itself. And this Eternium is also a power source. And I think, to my knowledge, I don't think Eternium. I think that's a brand new metal. If I'm wrong about that, feel free to correct me. Anybody in the, in the chat or anywhere else, feel free to correct me. But I, I believe Eternium is a reference to the house, uh, to the Rock of Eternity, which is where the wizard Shazam lives, who ultimately gives uh, the, the Captain Marvel powers to Black Adam and then later on to Billy Batson to become Captain Marvel Shazam. And so Eternium, I thought, is a cool name. And what I really love about this is Kevin Scott does a really good job here scripting a story of of uh, of a burglar, a very talented burglar by the name of Jim Craddock, <laughs> who is, of course, we know in the mainstream DC universe as the gentleman's ghost, and he tries to steal Eternium, and his attempts at stealing Eternium, despite his best efforts, he's he appears to be very talented, very athletic, but despite his best efforts, he can't escape. He cannot escape uh, Hawkman, who manages to take him out, and uh, he tries to escape. Unfortunately for him, when he tries to escape, he his uh, flight his his flight machine that he tries to escape on. Jim Craddock ends up crashing into a building and ends up being killed. He accidentally essentially kills himself, and and in doing so, uh, by killing himself, uh, he 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 sees himself dying, and he's a spirit. And then these these other spirits of this. Uh, uh, these spirits, which I believe are related to this Nako, the Destroyer, uh, because there, there was a reference in here that the Justice Society in the past acquired this Eternium after defeating uh, Nako, the Destroyer. And these spirits, which uh, I believe are related to this this Destroyer spirit, uh, empowered and resurrected Jim Craddock by making a deal with him, telling him, if you kill Hawkman, we'll, we'll keep you alive. And, you know, of course, he'd be the gentleman's ghost because the, the code word for this Craddock character in this comic is the gent uh, as a was a cool reference that was his I think his burglar cool code name the gent as perhaps a cool offshoot of the gentleman's ghost for those for us comic book fans and now he does appear to actually die for real at the end of this uh, but it's it's very interesting I love how there's sort of a spiritual element here where where Jim Craddock as, as the gentleman's ghost here tries to uh, through uh, Im- tries to impose upon Hawkman sort of a spiritual sort of prison that he's in. And it's within that spiritual prison where Hawkman feels imprisoned. And while he's spiritually imprisoned, he has visions of Dr. Fate, uh, the Dr. Fate who in the movie will be played by, played by Pierce Brosnan. And he, he, 
before anything can come of his seeing Dr. Fate, he ultimately ends up escaping and defeating uh, Jim Craddock by stabbing him with a fragment, a shard of, e- of Eternium, which is interesting because the two metals that seem to have an impact to be able to hurt and actually injure the Jim Craddock as a ghost is Nth Metal, the mate, uh, the uh, the mace of Hawkman, which is made of nth metal, does seem to have an impact. It does seem to affect Craddock and be able to hurt him. And finally, a shard of the Eternium itself really burns Craddock, so it can kill even a ghost, so it can even kill the undead. So this Eternium uh, metal is quite interesting, and so presumably it's going to be, I'm quite certain it's very likely going to be in the Black Adam movie. So that's pretty cool there, and it ends with uh, essentially Hawkman having a very, very bad feeling that something is coming that they're not alone and that uh whatever this these nefarious forces that he feels are coming he's going to need help and uh it's he knows he's not going to be able to handle handle it alone and as he's saying that he's staring at a shard with with an image of hawkman uh, with an image of dr fate so hawkman is staring at a piece of shard uh, glass with with the image of dr fate in it suggesting and imp- strongly implying that Hawkman will at some point get the help of Dr. Fate against whatever forces are coming, which we can assume or presume is likely going to be the forces of Black Adam, which will come for us in the movie, which I, I should all say this, that Craddock was hired by Intergang. Now, Intergang in the comic books is normally a, an enemy, uh, a, a mafia associated and based in Metropolis, and Intergang always causes problems for Superman, but it's Intergang that is, are the nefarious bad guys in the Black Adam movie and it's Intergang that hired Black that hired Jim Craddock to the gent to try to steal this piece of Eternium so I thought this was a really good main story I I I thought it was well written. I thought, my God, it's so good to see Hawkman again. I love this Hawkman. I just really, really enjoyed this version of Hawkman. He's just as kick-ass as the Carter Hall in the mainstream DC universe. I love the, the the references to Justice Society. I thought the art here was really good in the main story. I thought it was really good. It really wet my appetite. And I'm really looking forward to the other one-shots we're going to get as a build-up to this movie. So uh, what do you think of it? Oh, you're, you're on mute. Sorry. Yep. Sorry about that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I got almost a James Bond feel from the, this Aldous Hodge. Aldous Hodge is the actor that's going to play Hawkman in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got this very suave, sophisticated sort of feel, but yeah, with the powers of Hawkman, I'm a huge gentleman ghost fan. He's one of my favorite DC villains. I don't think he gets used enough. Um, now, I, I agree with you in terms of, okay, how much is this going to have to do with the movie? Probably not anything. I'd be surprised if Inner Gang gets mentioned in the movie. I'd be surprised if – I'm sure Eternium will be mentioned. Eternium, yeah, you mentioned it, shards from the Rock of Eternity. It's only been used in the regular DCU once, as far as I know. Far, far in the future, Legion of Superheroes collects uh, pieces of Eternia. And I think they forged it back to recreate the Rock of Eternity. Other than that, it's been used a lot in the CW, in the Flash TV series, I think, maybe Supergirl as well, as this um, mysterious metal that has all kinds of powers. So not surprising that it's come into the DC movie universe. So, yeah, I think this does add a lot and maybe sets up stuff for future Black Adam movies or perhaps Justice Society movies. Um, with the gentleman ghost as a, a possible uh, 
making a possible appearance in the, the DC movie universe at some point. Now, don't go thinking, oh, uh, let me spec on that and go f- buy the first appearance of the Gentleman Ghost because it's Flash Comics 88 from like 1947. So <laughs> it's already a book that's worth thousands and thousands of dollars and likely wouldn't see a bump from um, from uh, any kind of appearance in a DC movie. It's a book that I, I was interested in obtaining a few years ago and I looked into it and it is very rare. Uh, I think there are 17 known copies on the CGC census. So <laughs> wow. again, it's not a, it's yeah, it's not a book that you, that you're just going to, it's golden age again, 1947, very hard to find. Um, I will buy one one day if I can find one from under 500 bucks in decent condition, but so far that hasn't happened. But anyway, uh, you did a great job of, of recapping. Uh, so I won't get into that, but yeah, I just, I loved it. I thought it was paced well. Um, be sure you go in. Like, if you're a Hawkman fan, I am kind of curious. Um, there are some pretty big Hawkman fans out there, and they've been um, maybe unfairly starved of any Hawkman content lately. I certainly feel like the Robert Venditti Hawkman series was the best the character was ever treated and deserved to keep going. Um, but be that as it may, if you go into this reading it thinking, hey, I'm going to really enjoy this Carter Hall Hawkman content. This is not that. This is definitely a sneak peek of the version of Hawkman we're going to get in the movie. And hopefully we get quite a bit of him. I hope he's not just, you know, cameo and I hope he's on screen more than like five minutes, but I guess we'll see. We know we're getting Dr. Fate. Uh, We know we're getting what Adam Smasher and Cyclone as well, which I can never get used to calling him Adam Smasher. He'll always be Nuclon to me from Infinity Incorporated, but uh, anyway, yeah, curious to see the movie. Um, and yeah, th- uh, this is definitely new reader friendly. And if you're a big fan of The Rock, I uh, definitely encourage you to check this out before going to see the movie. Whether it adds to it or not, I guess remains to be seen. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman Killing Time number five. This is from writer Tom King. Art is by David Marquez. Colors are by Alejandro Sanchez. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, you know what I was saying earlier about maybe Tom King's in charge of the DC editorial now telling all these stories out of order. Yeah. This is continuing, um, with timestamps to make everything make sense, which it wasn't as bad in this issue. Uh, although I I felt the beginning sort of uh, trick he's using, he basically, he gives us one minute of time and then says, this is what happened in that one minute. And then he moves forward another minute and another minute, and another minute. And everything that's happening, as he's describing it, is happening at this place called Moldoff Park. The name Moldoff sounds familiar. It's uh, an homage to Sheldon Moldoff, who was a DC Comics creator back in the uh, Golden and Silver Age. So Tom's paying, Tom King's paying tribute to him. Um, but basically, we're, we're told about all these people that are dying. They're all being killed. And then we flash back to figure out why. Well, What's happening is the the eye of God or the eye of Jesus, uh, which is supposedly the most powerful artifact in the world, is going to be handed over to the agent of the U.S. government, supposedly for the second time. They already tried to do the exchange once. It went horrifically because the agent tried to double cross Riddler and Catwoman. So now they've set up another meet. Catwoman going, this is not going to go well. Riddler in his hubris and, and Catwoman, rightly so, call him an idiot. Um, and this is kind of more the Riddler that I know. Uh, he's not as smart as he thinks he is, <laughs> as opposed to the Scott Snyder version where he's this genius level 
that rivals just about anybody in the DCU. I don't care for that version. Uh, I like him more like this, where he's fallible and he, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. And so he's like, ah, oh, you know, money, it's easy for the government to get money. Money's the easiest. That's what they'll do. Not everyone's smart enough to appreciate a challenge. I'm like, yeah, Catwoman's right. You are an idiot. Why would they not just show up, you know, armed to the teeth with a helicopter hovering overhead with a, a bomb as the last resort? And that's exactly what they do. Um, meanwhile, it's been leaked out all over everywhere, despite the Riddler saying, hey, to the go- you know government agent, come alone. And the government agent said, yeah, you come alone as well. So instead, what you have is this giant army, over 100 people that the Penguin, who wants this artifact for himself, the, the Penguin sends in, uh, plus- Three busloads. The Penguin sends yeah, three yeah. busloads of and terrorists. Yeah, and they're not just his henchmen. They're henchmen from- <laughs> Unreal. From Tweedledee and <laughs> from the Joker. And like he, I mean, he just gathers everybody at his- It's lounge. insane. <laughs> yeah, and, and some Riddler uh, henchmen as well, and and uh, Captain Cole, like got people with Captain Cold gun, like yeah. so a lot of people die. It's a very high body count, um, w- and at the end of the day, the Riddler ends up with the eye uh, walking away. So uh, we get just a very tiny bit of Batman taking on this agent, who also her and Riddler are kind of two peas in a pod here. She's arrogant and overconfident and ultimately idiotic with her decisions as well, um, thinking that she can stop Batman, uh, you know, even though it is, again, relatively early in Batman's career. But uh, the art here is fantastic. Absolutely loved it. This is what I talk about when I say clean art. Um, it, really kinetic, a lot of characters, a lot of action in the fight scenes, but it still conveys everything it needs to convey very, very well. Uh, we only get a little bit of the help here. looks like him and Catwoman are going to go toe-to-toe. A uh, big fan of him as a, a character. Love the color work from Alejandro Sanchez. So, yeah, uh, one issue left to go for this series, and it hasn't it hasn't really gone the way that I thought it would, um, but it's a whole heck of a lot of fun and a ton of action, which is how Tom sold it to me. You know, he said it described it as like a big summer blockbuster popcorn movie with – tons of action and it would be told linearly. Well, most of those things are true, um, but I'm really enjoying it. And I hope we see more of the help uh, in the future. what do you think? My only question is that the person that ends up with this eye, uh, this uh, eye of Athena, which is a, he who holds the eye holds the world. This eye of Athena, this uh, goddess of the goddess of wisdom, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, is now blinded. She's missing her eye. This eye of Athena. This this is not the Riddler. At the the person who's picked up this eye at the end. You call him the Riddler. Is that the Riddler? Because the Riddler was wearing a mask. Like it. it I don't think that's the Riddler. Oh, you might be. Do you right. know who that is? I don't know who that is. I don't think it's the Riddler. Because well, whoever it is, who, the Riddler whoever it is, is the Catwoman. one that's narrating. Whoever it is is the one that's narrating the story. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right because now that I, you know, I go back and look, the good Riddler's wearing the bright green suit. Yeah, with the purple necktie, and he's been knocked out by Catwoman. Yeah, so, so I don't yeah, know who this character sure. is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, at first I thought maybe it was the Help, but that it's not the Help either. The Help is doesn't wear a hat and he's he's bald and he's older and yeah. But in any event, I. Uh, I still have some the, – the, some of the questions still remain. Why did uh, – and the help even asked this question. Why Why did Bruce Wayne keep keep this eye of Athena in a mere bank vault 
for years seemingly if if there wasn't for if 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 the riddler and if the riddler and catwoman hadn't found out about this about this eye of of athena from the joker in arkham asylum an issue whatever two that was uh they would never have robbed the bank but why did batman have it of all people and is it related to maybe batman's early confrontations with raza gall because maybe raza gall had an interest in acquiring this eye of athena i don't know so i'm and i'm still i'm still not clear exactly what this eye is supposed to do it certainly looks harmless enough i mean it doesn't really look it just it literally just looks like a like a like a hard eyeball and and yet does it does it grant immortality does it grant resurrection does it grant does it heal i I don't really know does it grant wisdom i i you know i'm I'm still not clear what what the back with this greek backstory where tom king does these time jumps in the past i'm still not sure what all that means but i will say what what i love about this issue here regardless of that is the i really felt the adrenaline pump i mean i really loved those those first uh uh five or six pages where it really hammered home how viscerally violent this this massacre at moldovo park moldava park was um pardon me moldoff moldoff park i I can't believe how, and it's it's very visceral. He talks about cops being killed with wives and children, and he really tries to humanize the death toll and the victims at this park, which was a little bit, a little bit odd for Tom King to do that in, in a sense. I mean, why is he trying to get us to feel for the victims in this park? Like, he's got a kind of an odd narrative approach to it because it's not like we know any of these characters, but I guess he's trying to give us a sense of the scope of the massacre uh, that's taking place all over this. I, I think I think he's trying to reinforce the idea that so many people throughout history, thousands and thousands of people have died for this eye of Athena. And I think he's doing that because I have this sneaking suspicion at the end that this eye maybe isn't going to be as big a deal as people think. And that I, I think, I think we're going to be, I hate to do it, but he might pull a Tom King. I have a feeling that, I mean, you know, because I, I keep asking myself just like, uh, just like the help ass Batman, why would you keep this in a mere bank fault if this is so valuable? Uh, may, maybe it's not quite as powerful as people think. Maybe there's some massive misdirection that's going on. That's going to be revealed. Uh, as all these stories converge in terms of what this eye actually does. But uh, in any event, I, I like it. I'm getting accustomed a little bit more to the time, the time frame now. I, I, I still think I shouldn't have taken five issues to get this acclimated to it, but it, I am, enjo- I am enjoying this. I, this issue I enjoyed probably, probably my, it's probably a tie for the, the, I like that issue. I think it was issue three where he fought the help for the first time. I really enjoyed that one as well. This one I enjoyed. This is up there with one of my more, more favorite issues of the first five. And, but only one issue to go, only one issue to go here. So it's going to be interesting to see how it wraps up. Yeah. Fast paced to read all in one sitting. I would imagine it does move pretty quick. So, yeah. uh, all right. Up next one that many, many, many people have been waiting for. We want to talk about a lot of covers. Uh, we got the main cover, and then let's see. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven uh, variants, including a one in two fifty, a one in one twenty five, and a one in five hundred. One in fifty, one in twenty five, three open order variants. Uh, but it's the debut of Chip Zdarsky on Batman, Batman one twenty five. Jorge Jimenez is the artist. Tamei More on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, yeah, what'd you think? 
I um, I was a little bit. Uh, uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed, to be honest with you. Uh, first, I was a little bit surprised that there's an eight-page preview of this Batman 125 in in a lot of the DC comics this month, which actually surprised me. <laughs> if the last thing you need to advertise in an eight-page preview in other DC comics is Batman, I mean, uh, I thought that was uh, just a really dumbfounded thing for DC to do. I, I don't think they need to advertise Chip Sardaski writing Batman. I think people are, are migrating toward it anyway. He's already writing Batman the Night, uh, which is do, doing a reasonably good job on that. And I think I think the sales in that are reasonably well. Uh, but uh, this is uh, uh, this what. It, this threw me a little bit at first because apparently the penguin is dying and the penguin dies in this issue. That's sort of the setup here. This deals with the will of the penguin, uh, which which really threw me. Uh, and this uh, uh, Oswald Cobblepot is dying of mercury poison, of all things. And apparently what he sets up is... Uh, now, do you uh, think that's a like a callback to him eating raw fish? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, mercury. Well, and, you know, I couldn't think maybe, of like, why. You know, eating all the oil. Yeah, fair enough. You know what? I never even thought of that. I was going to actually ask where the hell did he get mercury poisoning, but I guess yeah, yeah it makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah, he's, he's eating all that raw fish from from Gotham Harbor. So yeah, it's probably all got all kind. No, no telling what the hell. Uh, all kinds of mercury is in is floating around in Gotham Harbor, but uh, that makes sense. But, but. Cobblepot's plan here, he, he wants to basically, uh, th this, it starts off in a very tropey manner with Batman taking out, uh, basically a, a sniper and, and, and a terrorist who is, who's killed a member of the upper elite. And, uh, he's killed, he's killed a guy by the name of, um, um, he's killed a guy by the name of, uh, uh, for, uh, Colin and Clara Fitzroy, who are, uh, and apparently this Colin Fitzroy was a friend of Bruce Wayne's for a while because uh, they were, you know, billionaires, multimillionaires and billionaires sort of hang out in the same group. And uh, and the Penguin takes credit for the, the, the murder. And uh, be, and he basically says, look, anyone, I'm sick and tired of the elite. I never fit in, even though I own the Iceberg Lounge and I've been successful in my own right. I'm going to anyone in Gotham who's inherited over five million dollars, I'm going to take out. I'm going to kill you because you don't deserve it. You, you, you treated me badly. And basically, Batman sort of dismisses this saying, Oswald, why are you doing this? I mean, you're throwing a tantrum here. And who are you kidding? You've been as successful as, as, as anyone else. Where is this coming from? And, and, and so when Batman ultimately confronts Oswald, uh, Oswald t basically tells him, well, he's dying of mercury poisoning, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but, um, uh, before he dies, uh, Bruce Wayne ends up going to this uh, this gala, and uh, he ends up going to this gala, this uh, Fugelheim gala, where the all the Gotham's elite will be there. So. Bruce Wayne knows Batman easily predicts what the Penguin's going to do. You're going to try to attack the elite and the rich at the very place where the elite and rich are having a party at this big Fugelheim uh, gala. And Tim Drake is there with Batman. 
and basically they uh, right on cue Penguin uh, Penguin does exactly what Batman predicts he'll do he's going to gas the place both him between him and Tim Drake they they got the Penguin figured out and the Penguin does exactly what they predict he'll do so this is all going according to how Batman thinks the Penguin operates and Tim Drake and they and the Penguin he does they they stop the gas from from coming out Uh, they 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 shut off all the, the the necessary ventilation and I mean basically Tim Drake and and Batman they do a pretty damn good job stopping what could have been a horrible event killing more of Gotham's elite and and then uh, and then Batman uh, Bruce Wayne brings brings his Batman suit and in in a very interesting co- uh, costume change Batman is sort of half Bruce Wayne half Batman he's wearing the mask and a Bruce Wayne shirt in his utility belt with his uh, dress pants kind of looks kind of cool actually <laughs> and uh, he confronts uh, and uh, he confronts ultimately confronts the uh, uh, penguin who ends up being actually Clayface and. Uh, sadly, uh, Tim Drake ends up getting shot in the neck and Batman takes Tim Drake, rushes Tim Drake to the hospital. And, uh, there's some flashbacks that Chip Sardaski, uh, uh, gifts the reader, uh, on where, cause Batman of course has uh, some pretty bad recollections of, uh, another Robin being, uh, being injured and losing one Robin. He certainly doesn't want to lose Tim Drake. Tim Drake is his best soldier, as he puts it, one of his best. And, uh, he, as he says, the mission be damned. He's not worried about the mission. He wants to save Tim Drake. And so Tim Drake is recovering in the hospital while he visits the penguin. And, uh, the penguin, uh, is just sort of screams at him and just and he's dying and he's bitter and he's upset and he's just a jerk and uh and and ultimately ultimately he dies uh batman tells him you know life isn't fair but you killed good people and uh uh, penguin doesn't care he says fitzroy was the worst of them he'd gamble at the iceberg pawing at women insulting my staff and uh the, the penguin is just straight up he's an angry bitter dying old man and What's interesting here is uh, the penguin sna- bites bites a what appears to be sort of a cyanide capsule and 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 dies with the Batman talking to him in the hospital, making it look and setting it up. His final act of revenge on Batman is he's making it look as if Batman killed him, and so Batman flees the hospital. And Batman, you know, feels like a fool for letting Penguin get the best of him like that. But I'm sure he didn't think that the Penguin would actually that would actually kill himself. Because, in fact, that's that's a shock to me as a reader. I never saw the Penguin as the suicidal type, to be honest with you. So this is the Penguin at his most depressed, depraved, and the most dark that we've ever seen Penguin. And of course, he's taken himself off the playing field now. Interestingly enough, as this happens. At the same time, in the Batcave, there seems to be a protocol that has been activated called the Failsafe Protocol, and it looks like there's like a mechanical Terminator version of Batman that has been activated, and I'm not sure why this is the case. Is, Bat- is Batman aware that within the Batcave, there's a, there's a, there's a failsafe activation that's taken place? And I'm wondering what it is, and I... I I'm wondering if yeah, I got my own theories, but I I, I don't. Uh, uh, I'm reluctant to speculate at this time without knowing more information. But it would be interesting to hear readers' theories. What is this failsafe activation that's taken place in the Batcave? That this robot. I mean, clearly Batman must know that there was this 
Terminator, Batman looking Terminator uh, within the Batcave that's now been activated. And why is it, why does it choose to get activated now as opposed to sometime in the past? I'm not sure. But kudos to artist uh, Jose Jimenez uh, does a fantastic job on the art. Uh, really, really well done. And um, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm really intrigued because now that uh, Oswald Cobblepot, we know that, uh, you know, uh, Batman is deemed to be is thought to be the murder of Oswald Cobblepot and the consequences and it would appear that Chip Sardowski's first major story arc for Batman uh, other than his uh, uh, his I guess his, his Batman uh, his other series is going to be a Penguin story about the consequences of the, the fallout of the, the death of the Penguin and in particular what the backup begins to give, tease us about in terms of the will of the Penguin uh, which is a Catwoman story but before we get there what did you think of the main story proper uh, Jace? Yeah I thought it was okay um, you know a bit underwhelmed I mean maybe it's not fair to always expect Chip Zdarsky to hit a home run um, if anything, this does show me that as much as people always refer to Daredevil as the, the, you know, the Batman of the Marvel universe, he's not, they are very different characters. Um, although the argument could be made they're they're both very street level characters. There's a kind of a humanity to Daredevil that the Batman doesn't have as much as Batman is a non superpowered character. He is, as we all know, the engine that drives the DC universe. He's the one that pays their bills. But he, there's this larger-than-life mystique to Batman. None of us could ever be Batman. Uh, there's maybe some of us that could be, you know, could see ourselves as Daredevil. But Batman, he's a, he's a step above in terms of of power, mystique, uh, capability, however you want to put it, and. I, I think that's an important distinction. So when Zdarsky's writing Batman the Knight, he's writing this Bruce Wayne is traveling around the world trying to, you know, obtain the information and skills that he needs to become the Batman. But this Batman that Zdarsky's writing here doesn't feel like Batman to me. This is not a Batman who's only a year in or two years in. This is a Batman who's been through it all, who's lost his money, who's lost Alfred, who's who has done it and been it for a long time, right? This is the Batman. I don't get that from Zdarsky. This feels like a weakened, watered-down version of Batman in a lot of ways. Um, now, the argument could be made that there are issues. Bruce has a lot of stuff he's dealing with. Like I just mentioned, losing his fortune, um, losing uh, Alfred, possibly losing Tim Drake, or certainly seeing him injured here. But for him to fall for something as simple as a bait and switch from the penguin. It just felt so not Batman. Um, even though he doesn't really even seem to care that much. He, t he tells Oracle at the end, he's like, well, it's crimes down. Actually, people are more scared of me now. You know what? No, I'm not buying it. Batman's been around so long. The villains of Gotham city know who Batman is. They know he doesn't kill a really tropey plot point. Batman's been around for decades at this point, and you're telling me that people believe he actually killed the Penguin? Why? He could have killed the Penguin at any point. Why now? Why, when the Penguin is dying in the hospital, is he going to go in there and kill the Penguin? Like, it just doesn't make any sense if you stop and think about it for even a split second. So 
it just it lacks any sort of believability. So uh, based on the first issue, I'm not super excited. And I was really excited for Zdarsky's run. But this first issue really underwhelmed me. The Jimenez art, I mean, I've said this before. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Jorge but not on Batman. I don't, I don't care for his style on Batman. Love his, loved his style in justice league. Um, but not, not on Batman. Um, it's just, a, it's a little too unrefined, uh, for my taste. That being said, what, what did I like about the story? Well, I, yeah, I loved the fail safe. I love this idea of this robotic Batman and yeah, you didn't want to speculate. I'll hundred percent speculate. All I got to think is, and again, you got to take this with a grain of salt because it doesn't make sense that this would be a thing that wouldn't have been activated previously because this isn't the most original story. This idea of Batman killing somebody, Batman being framed for doing something terrible. But if I had to guess, uh, if I'm throwing my speculation out there, so Batman himself created this fail safe robot and it's to be activated in case Batman himself ever goes rogue. Then this failsafe activates and goes and takes out Batman. Yeah, I, I agree. That, uh, that's my guess too. I, I just, I, I like you. I kind of figured maybe that's a little bit too obvious, but uh, well, I mean, it. it but I don't. Again, it, it, but it's never been activated before, despite the fact we've had Bruce Wayne murder, we've had Batman framed for murder in, I got to be twenty stories, if not more, at this point. Okay, so yeah. Why has failsafe never been activated before? Well, there's an easy answer for that because Zdarsky's never written the story before. And he's the one that came up with this idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in continuity, I mean, that's the real reason. But in continuity, there's not a good reason why it hasn't been activated before. And as much as I don't care that much for uh, Jimenez's art on the series, I do love his design of this failsafe robot. So, um, I, you know, based on the execution of the, the rest of the arc, I may be able to forgive some of these things. Um I mean, the thing that I love about Zdarsky is how much emotion he brings to his stories. If you've read his recent Daredevil work, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I thought he did a fantastic job with Justice League, Last Ride. So if he can bring some emotion to this story, then you know I'll be able to forgive some of these plot points that aren't making sense for me. But at the end of the day, what I need from Zdarsky, other than you know, a good story with some emotion – is I need him to bring back Alfred and give Bruce's money back because at the end of the day, those choices, those editorial choices for the narrative haven't really done anything. Like their impact – like remember when Tynan said, oh, I'm going to lean into him not having the resources? It was mentioned here or there, but it never, it, it never landed with any sort of impact. And so at the end of the day, it's not hamstringing the stories that the writers are going to tell. They're going to tell the stories they want to tell. And the same thing with Alfred being gone. You know who suffers? It's the readers. The readers want to see the Batcave. The readers want to see Alfred. If you're not going to lean into those plot points and make them a critical part of the narrative, then it's then what are you doing them for? Yeah. It doesn't make and any it, sense. And it's worth pointing out to, to readers that maybe are just coming on board and, and reading Batman again for the first time in a while that uh, just to be clear, the Batcave is actually 
it's closed down like and and the picture of the batman confirms that that batman's not using the Batcave anymore in in detective comics during marika tamaki's run batman was actually had a series of mini caves in the in the sewage systems throughout gotham he's yeah, not call, actually micro caves micro caves that's right and so he's not actually using the Batcave under wayne manor anymore and so that's why the image here uh for those who are just listening on the podcast this is an image of it looks like everything is covered up in the Batcave. it's not being used and and the coloring here is to really good effect that uh you know it's beep 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 uh you know something's activating in this cave that's supposedly not being used and empty and so it's this fail safe device and uh or fail safe uh what appears to be a terminator type batman robot and it makes sense that maybe if batman's crossed the line that batman had safety protocols put in place uh that he probably erased from his that maybe he had satana erased from his memory <laughs> no, because that's the other part, right? Like if, yeah. if he's using the Batcave and this thing goes off, then he goes, oh, no, I'm actually not a killer. I don't need the failsafe to go off. Right now. But he's not in the Batcave. Yeah. So, you know, I guess in that aspect, it it helps that he's lost his fortune. He's not in the Batcave. But Zadarsky could have found another way around that. I just – it just – it doesn't – it doesn't serve any purpose in my mind anymore for him not to have his fortune and for Alfred not to be around. Like mm. it, it just, yeah. Yeah. But, so what do you think of the backup? I, my... I did like the backup. Um, the backup makes me want Zdarsky to be like, okay, Zdarsky, maybe don't write Batman. Can we get Zdarsky <laughs> writing bat, uh, uh, writing Catwoman? Cause I really liked it. Um, the Bell and Ortega art I thought was fun as well. Uh, and you know what? What's interesting, and I didn't necessarily think about it till just now. You know, I'm talking about what a great job he does on Daredevil, a more street level character. The argument could be made that Catwoman is a much more street level character, and he's even bringing her down further, right? He in within the story, Catwoman herself is thinking, "I, I need to get back to my roots." I, you know, stealing diamonds, and you know, instead of trying to make Gotham a safer place, and blah blah blah, right? Mm-hmm. And then it comes out that she's going to help this character called. Uh, the executor uh, and the executor in terms of executing like executing wills, like legal contracts and whatnot, who works for the underbroker, who's like this, I think he's fully automated like this, like an Android. He's a great character. He's got like a handlebar mustache and chops and whatever. Uh, He just looks great. And his job is to execute the will of the penguin who killed himself again, very surprised, but we all know he'll be back. Um, but he doesn't, he's like, based on, you know, my programming, I don't have any confidence that I'm going to be able to execute this will. Cause I'm going to be unable to find the majority of the people that need to be there for the reading of the will. And so he, he, he's like uh, penguin set aside money for these people to be found. Cause Catwoman's like, why would I help you? He's like, well, I'll give you $500,000. That's the finder's fee that the <laughs> penguin set aside. That doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot of money, you know, but yeah, Bruce Wayne is broke now. So to Catwoman sounds pretty fun so uh and you know she could certainly use the money so i I like it It, again it's a more street level type story and i think that's where zadarsky excels now whether his batman run gets better we'll have to wait and see but i'm just talking you know first impressions here what didn't work for me with the main story and and not that i didn't enjoy it and again i'm very curious about this failsafe character but i i think i think the backup was more successful i just think it's a better executed narrative. And I wonder if it's just, maybe Zdarsky just needs to get his footing, you know, like I haven't read, I haven't read anything from Zdarsky where he's 
written like a true superhero other than Spider-Man, but you could even argue that Spider-Man's somewhat of a You haven't read his uh, Daredevil? What? No, I have. I have, but I'm but I'm saying again, that's a very street level character. Yeah. Daredevil to me is a more street level character than Batman. Batman is more he's more of a superhero. You know, even though he doesn't have super heroic powers, just the way he is, he's so smart, he's so capable in the DC universe. But I'm talking like I've never seen Zadarsky do like Captain America or Iron Man or Wonder Woman or Superman, you know, somebody or Thor, you know, somebody who, mm-hmm. you know, part of their story is that their powers are fantastical, you know? Um, and despite the fact that Batman is a, a super heroic character, he is very fantastical in a lot of ways. Uh, Catwoman, not so much, you know, she's much more, you know, uh, a street level character. Not to you know use that term to death, but anyway, what did you think of the background? Uh, well, uh, I liked uh, th- th- this involves the Iceberg Lounge. Uh, the Penguin dies and the Penguin's a very rich man and he's a billionaire. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, it, uh, you know, what happens to a criminal underboss when he dies and he doesn't have a named heir? Uh, well, in this case, uh, the Penguin does have a will. And at the end of this, ultimately, this this executor character. And I, I, I really love the name of the executor because it can also be pronounced the executor, I suppose. But he's not really a killer. What's interesting about this executor character, and I'm assuming we say it, we pronounce it executor because we usually talk of an executor to a will. And this is a legal robot, essentially, a glorified legal robot. But uh, I suppose he can also kick some ass and he can be quite violent when called upon. So he could probably execute, as you say. So, you you know, is he he's executor sometimes and an executor other times. So I kind of like that little play on those the potential play on words there. Um, and I, I love seeing the, the underbroker again. Uh, Selena, of course, doesn't like the underbroker. The last time underbroker had a major storyline was in uh, was uh, with under under Tinian's run. Uh, he helped facilitate Underbroker, of course, uh, in working with the Joker uh, through Punchline, helped facilitate the, the loss of Bruce Wayne's fortune that was ultimately regained, but ultimately ended up in the hands of uh, the Fox family. But uh, in any event, uh, it's interesting that uh, this executor is, he states that he works for the Underbroker, it looks like, and he, he says something very interesting. He says that he says that uh, that my only reason for existing, uh, the executor's only reason for existing, apparently, is is the reading of the will. So it's it's almost as if he's. Uh, I'm getting the impression that he's programmed for a specific legal purpose, and that's why the underbroker utilizes him. So it's going to be. I I find this a very fascinating concept for a character, this executor character, because he's 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 he's, he's essentially programmed for a very specific purpose, but he also has limitations, and in this case, one of those limitations is that he needs to locate the 10 children of the penguin. I didn't know the penguin had 10 children. I know that he, I know the penguin has at least one son because he, he popped up in the pages of Batgirl. Uh, but I didn't know he had more than one child. Uh, mind you, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I never, to be honest, I, other than, you know, I mean, the last interesting thing I learned about the penguin is in Tom King's run that apparently he actually, he, he likes, you know, you know, he, 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 he has some, 
he has sex with penguins from time to time, apparently. But uh, beyond that, I didn't know that the penguin, I knew he had one son, but I didn't realize he had one more than that. And the fact that Selena is going to help look for his children is potentially interesting uh, because meanwhile, we got uh, Iko, uh, Iko Hasegawa, uh, who is uh, from Cat from Catwoman's run, uh, and uh, also this guy named Finbar Sullivan, another mafia mafioso. Uh, there, there, there might be a mob war fighting over the Iceberg Lounge because the Iceberg Lounge is almost like probably one of the, the more higher elite places to be in Gotham City. That's the impression I, I always got of the Iceberg Lounge is that it was the coolest place in Gotham to be. That's where that's where people went to. Uh, you know, that's where the elite wanted to go is the Iceberg Lounge, and and it was probably the Penguin's greatest greatest treasure was the Iceberg lounge and so it's not surprising that this backup feature starts off with this Finbar uh, Sullivan character this former client of the Penguins there wanting to essentially take it over because it's a popular gambling and gala establishment so anyways I thought this was well done I agree with you I'm this this backup works in in really in great conjunction with with the first part of the story that sets batman up as sort of like being the prime suspect the person of interest as to the death of the penguin and he's going to be while he's dealing with that you got catwoman looking for the off looking for the beneficiaries of the penguin uh with this new executor character and i'm a, you know He's definitely got my attention, uh, Chip Sardaski. I got. I'm asking a lot of questions, but I, I'm asking the right questions, and I, I'm. I'm really interested to see what this failsafe is. I. I I hope there's a little bit more to it, and it's not quite as predictable as you and I sort of guessed. But we'll we'll wait and see. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Uh, on to more Batman. We have Batman '89 number six. Um, I, I do have to say that. Uh, you know, as we often say, when things get delayed, they lose their momentum. And this certainly was delayed uh, as opposed to the uh, Superman 79 or 78, whatever it was, uh, that came out on time and, and we, we really enjoyed. This was less successful for me. So uh, it's called Shadows. Sam Hamm is the writer. He's the one that wrote the screenplays for the first two Batman movies. Joe Quinones is the artist. Leonardo, Leonardo Ito on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, I've said before, I'm not a big fan of 89 Batman, um, th that version. So th this certainly isn't for me. That being said, I think that it does a good job of, of capturing the feel of those movies, the Michael Keaton Batman. Um, we do get a little more Michael Keaton Batman in this issue than we've gotten in the whole series so far. But we, it's almost more Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne or Michael Keaton as Batman out of the costume than in the costume. So overall, I really think this should have been called Two-Face 89 because he by far gets the most screen time. Yeah. Catwoman, the Michelle Pfeiffer version of Catwoman even gets more screen time than, than Batman. Batman is an afterthought here, which makes me think this never would have worked as uh, a screenplay anyway because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Michael Keaton's the headliner. Um, that being said, uh, it's okay. Uh, it makes sense. A lot of what you see here and read the narrative. Uh, you could see it on the big screen. Uh, you could see how they would have followed this um, storyline with a heck of a lot more Batman in it. Um, so it, it was okay. The addition of um, Duke as Robin, I guess, or Drake, rather Tim Drake, but a, an African-American Tim Drake, I guess works. Um, so yeah, it, it was just okay. Ultimately, um, 
whether I would have enjoyed it more had it come out in a more timely fashion, yeah, I can't really speculate on that. But yeah, it ultimately it's just okay. I imagine anybody who's a big fan of Batman 89 will probably like it, but probably will feel like they wish they had more Batman because it's, it, yeah, Batman, he's barely here, honestly. Uh, and like I said, even even though the the climax, the resolution of the story here involves a lot of Batman, it's it's not really Batman. It's it's Bruce Wayne <laughs> saving the day in a lot of ways. So, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it, it was all right. Uh, I, I share your general criticism that there this there wasn't quite enough there wasn't enough Batman throughout this entire series to really captivate me. I thought it was too long. I thought it was three issues too long. I thought it was way too decompressed, and I thought it focused too much on the new Robin and too much on Two Face, and it it, it wasn't a Batman story. And um, you uh, you know, there's that old expression, especially in movies, of which this is a reflection of the Batman '89 movie. That you know, sometimes heroes are only as strong as their villains, and this is a pretty weak villain. This is not a compelling. I didn't find Harvey Dent here compelling, and I'm really glad they never made this into a movie because this would have been boring as hell. The action, the action, the actions sets and the action pieces throughout this narrative have never been there hasn't been a single great action scene really that is really sort of that that stands out uh now having said this this does have good character moments so i i will give writer sam uh what's his last name again sam Sam ham yeah i will give him some credit because i i actually actually the character work here is actually it's actually pretty good uh particularly the character work between michael between michael keaton's batman bruce wayne and uh harvey dent uh, two-face that you know that that he batman does try to reach him bruce wayne does try to reach him by by talking him down and and actually trying to palm the the uh, coin to try to get him to um try to get him to see what what he, the the good side of Harvey Dent what he and and he is what Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent what what you and I Harvey could accomplish if you give it a chance you give it a chance you know uh, we, we can do this we can make Gotham a better place and and he's about to reach Harvey Dent, but uh, Catwoman Selina Kyle comes in and ends up uh, basically defeating and and, and taking out Harvey and sort of just when just when maybe Bruce Wayne is about to reach Harvey Selina comes along and and disrupts that and it was very reminiscent of 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 Batman Begins of of the second uh, of the second uh, Batman Keaton uh, Michael Keaton movie uh, so I thought it was a little bit tropey there and a little uh, a bit predictable um I would have liked, uh, the, the, you know, Selena Kyle. Uh, uh, Selena Kyle looks really sexy here. It's easy to imagine Michelle Pfeiffer in the role again as I'm reading this. So uh, I, I will give some props in that department. But for the most part, the reason why this felt a little bit uh, somewhat unfamiliar, the, the reason why the Superman 78 succeeded where Batman 89 did not, but this Batman 89 has failed because of too much focus on a brand new character we've never seen before, this, this, this new Robin character. That shouldn't even have been in this narrative. I'm sorry. I just I'm not a, I'm just not a fan of it. And uh, Two Face wasn't. Uh, I don't know. It just it just it just didn't work, and it felt too long. And this wasn't a Bruce Wayne story. This wasn't a Bruce Wayne story. And this should have been a Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle story. This should have been a predominantly focused on them, and maybe even given them a happy ending. The, the whole thing was just wrong headed to me. And um, 
you know, that's me playing script doctor. But I got to say, whenever I, I play script doctor, that means I'm not too happy with the with the story that I've been given. And unfortunately, while this did uh, this, this is structurally sound and it's well enough paced and it, it you know, there's substance within the six issues and you're going to be getting bang for your buck. I just didn't find it all that interesting. So, you know. But the art's good. Yeah, I mean, the argument yeah. can be made. It's focused on two new characters. We've got the Tim Drake Robin. We've also got the Harvey, uh, Two-Face, you know? Yeah, yeah, we saw yeah. Harvey Dent in the Batman movies, uh, Tim Tim Burton Batman movies, but we didn't see Two-Face. Um, so he's really a new a new character as well. And like I said, it should have been called Two-Face 89 because that's where the story is focused on yeah. rather than on Batman. So anyway, up next we have the Joker, number 15, uh, as well as the punchline backup. This is the final issue of James Tynan's Joker. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. We could we complain about the last one saying it could have been or should have been called two, Two-Face 89. This really should have been called Jim Gordon or, you know, Gordon. I think there was a miniseries back in the 90s, Gordon's Law. This was a Jim Gordon story, not a Joker story. But, you know, the, you put the Joker on the, the title and it's going to sell as opposed to Jim Gordon. But anyway, Tynan's the writer, Giuseppe Camincoli on pencils, Cam Smith and Lorenzo Ruggiero on inks, Arif Prianto on colors, Tam Napolitano on letters. I don't enjoy the Camincoli art as much as I enjoyed when we had Guilla March. Um, but Camincoli brings a moodiness to the art that I think, and, and sort of a timeless quality that really, really works, especially in the use of blacks and shadow. Um, and again, you know, calling out other writers for not telling a narrative uh, straightforward. and But it works here when Tynan does it. But here's the thing. He didn't do it throughout the series, right? So we know last issue that we saw Jim Gordon back in Gotham City and didn't know if he killed the Joker or not, which was sort of the point of the, the series. You know, Gordon's hired to, to kill the Joker. Um, and so at least Tynan, when he does, when he puts things out of order, he has a reason, right? He's heightening up the, the tension. He's heightening up the mystery. So basically in this issue, what we have is Gordon recapping in his own words what happened in Texas after Bane showed up at the Samson family barbecue where they were about to eat a bunch of people, including the Joker himself. Um, Ultimately, in Gordon's own words, uh, it really comes home who Jim Gordon is in terms of the guy's a hero. He never was going to – and I don't think anybody who's a longtime DC reader really would believe that Jim Gordon would kill the Joker – as much as Tynan gave us, you know, trauma after trauma, event after event from Gordon's life where he seemed to have every reason to want to kill the Joker, but he doesn't, he recaps everything for us, you know, uh, as he's telling Batman what happened, it all makes sense. It all, I wouldn't say is predictable, but it, it kind of falls into place. What's really interesting is at the end, when we find out a couple of things, we find out that vengeance, uh, she was pulled away from the Joker, her, you know, kind of programming that uh, the people that created her basically, you know, had inside of her brain to want to kill the Joker. Her father, uh, and, you know, you lose that term in quotes because, you know, she's a clone of Bane, a female clone of Bane, obviously. Uh, but Bane was able to talk her down like, hey, this is foolishness. You got to let go. You are your own weapon. You can't you can't be the weapon of the people who you know, programmed you to kill the Joker, let it go. Let's go get the people that you're really mad at. You know, the people that created you, the people that used you as a weapon. Um, and she agrees. So we know that we assume based on what Gordon says, that 
uh, Bane and Vengeance are down in Santa Prisa uh, attacking the, the people, dismantling the, the lab of, of the network that's got all these DNA samples of all these different supervillains that wanted to create their own army. So we assume that's going on. The other thing that we hear from Gordon is that he's going to go out on his own, um, not ready to go back to the Gotham City Police Department. He says maybe he will at some day and he'll maybe start to rebuild himself as the man everybody sees him as. But it's clear that this the events of the story have left a mark on him, and he just wants to do some good. He tells Batman, I, I need to do some good, but good in a different way. You know, like maybe the good would have been to, when you see evil, put a bullet in its head, right? Kill the Joker. He couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Um, he still wants to make a difference. He still wants to do good. So he's going to go off with Bullock and have his own detective agency. I'm 100% ready to read that. I hope that Tynan writes it. He probably won't. He's busy with his creator-owned stuff, but please get somebody good. Get a, somebody who knows who Gordon is. Greg Rucka is the one that immediately comes to mind. I don't know how busy he is or if he'd be willing to do it, but I'm all for a Jim Gordon um, private detective story, 100%. So ultimately, this was a great series. It's one I am looking forward to sitting down and reading in one or two sittings, all 15 issues. Um, I will be skipping the backups every time. Uh, it's not a story I want to go back and revisit, but the main story is a hundred percent worth, uh, reading in, in one sitting all, uh, all together. I think it's going to be a really great read. So what were your thoughts? Well, here's the $25 million question and $25 million representing the amount that Jim Gordon was to be paid for killing the Joker. He does not kill the Joker. Uh, so did he get the money? And he got uh, some money. He did get That's some. And what's yeah. interesting is Cressida, the Cressida Clark, who the individual who hired him, who basically was trying to take down the network to get information on the network. She is shot by the Joker. And before she dies, she, as you said, she transfers money to Jim Gordon, but we're not sure how much it is, but we can assume that it's, while it's not 25 million, uh, I don't know why it's not 25 million, but I mean, uh, but she says it's not 25 million. I'm, I'm curious as to know how much it is. I'm sure it's enough for him and Harvey Bullock to finance their new private detective agency to answer any questions as to how they can afford it. And it might actually be for the first time that Jim Corden can brag he's got more money than Batman, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which has got to be a first. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I would have, uh, I would have thought it wouldn't have been in keeping with Jim Gordon's uh, character, but I would have thought he would have just maybe taken a dig at Batman or something, or saying, "I got some cash now, you know," and I, you know, get it. Now he needs a Gordon mobile. That's what he needs—a cool car, you know, just like Batman. That's the first thing he's got to buy, because I bet you that's what Harvey Bullock's going to buy. But, anyways, I, I digress. Um, I uh, this uh, this wrap up, this summary of the things. The first half of this issue was was Gordon explaining to Batman what. Uh, readers, if you haven't been able to piece together what's been going on in the previous 14 issues, uh, it sort of spells things out. It actually, uh, in my view, spelled things out in a way that uh, I didn't actually, I was actually surprised a little bit. I, uh, I'm, in a, I'm very egotistical when I say that this, when I say that I, I think that my theory had my version of the story is much more exciting than, than, and then, than the one uh, Tinian told to tell, but it is what it is. That's my arrogance. I will say that one thing that does baffle me that I don't under really stand. I was really surprised that the talent character on the plane was actually, the, the Court of Owls that was trying to stop Cressida Clark, because the Court of Owls actually controls, was trying to prevent 
Chrisita Clark and Jim Gordon from finding out about the network. They actually had James Gordon Jr. They resurrected the corpse of James Gordon Jr. to become a Talon. And somehow Barbara Gordon knew that it was her brother. And I don't know how she would possibly know that. That's the only question that I have that's unanswered. How would she possibly know that that this Talon character was her brother? Did she... Yeah, like that. That's just to me. That's like completely out of the blue. We got no clue in terms before as to why that would be the case. So I'm a little bit surprised by that. But I, 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 I suppose that's just a way of maybe tying in the Gordon family. The Court of Owls wanted to psychologically take a make a blow to Jim Gordon, and so they wanted to prevent Jim Gordon from getting in, any information on the network that, because they didn't want it to be taken down because the Court of Owls is, was, was part of the network and setting things up. And they were obviously that this network is also getting DNA samples from all the villains that are that form part of the network and that the villains, when they vacation at these resorts, they get the, the network gets DNA samples from them to sort of create their own boogeyman and their own villains that they can control and all of this Gordon managed to get information from all of them I was uh, I was disappointed uh, that that old man Samson uh, never wasn't killed uh, the Joker never killed Samson <laughs> old man Samson Sawyer Samson the guy who wanted to get revenge on the Joker the Joker leaves the vault and doesn't kill old man Sawyer Samson who the mafia guy the the the, the guy who's who's uh who eats people uh he the Joker doesn't kill him but instead he shoots uh uh Chrisita Clark uh, the one who hired Jim Gordon to uh to find and kill the Joker uh which I can understand maybe the Joker killing her but why not the guy the mafia guy that went out of his way to try to to kill you as well I thought that was a little odd but of course Joker doesn't always have to make sense he's psychotic that's 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 always the excuse for the Joker he's you can't write the Joker out of character because he's always unpredictable but I was a little bit disappointed in that um, I was uh, I would have I wish there was more consequence here. Everything wrapped up a little bit too conveniently. Uh, vengeance does. Vengeance is alive. Bane is alive. Uh, the only one who dies is Christina Clark. Um, there was. Uh, there should have been more death. Uh, even old, Even Sawyer Sampson does, uh, doesn't die. Uh, in my view, there should have been far more bloodshed. There should have been far more consequence to this issue. There should have been more death in this issue. Uh, but there wasn't. Uh, and that's 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 a nitpick. Uh, but I, I was really really hoping that this story could have maybe stood out a little bit more i thought i thought bane the bane and vengeance storyline was particularly disappointing i i don't how would bane even know he had a daughter and why would he refer to her as a daughter when she's just a when he's just a you know i for for bane to have joined bane's entire motivation to join was to sort of draw out his daughter and he felt by working with Cressida that that would that would draw his daughter out um I would have thought there was a thousand other ways that Bane could have drawn his daughter out. But uh, in any event, uh, there's nitpicks here. Overall, I think that if people just read this as, as a trade, I think that they're going to get something out of it. It does come together at the end. It, Tinian does essentially tie up all the loose ends. Um, not to my satisfaction, because I, I would have tied it together differently, but it, it does work. It does work. But I think for the casual reader, 15 issues, this is going to be an expensive trade. This this did go on at least four or five issues too long, I think. Uh, that's me being uh, critical. Uh, and um, 
but uh, you know, I do look forward to what what we're missing. We need something like Gotham Central. We need a detect the, the the DC Universe needs a detective comic book series, and I can I can't think of a better two characters to have it than Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock. I would love to have a sort of like a Gotham Central type, of returning to that type of detective sensibility, and those characters are perfect for it. So. Yeah, I definitely don't think it went on too long because um, it was definitely a journey for, for Jim Gordon and obviously multiple trades. Um, I would say the backup went on way, way, way too long and I could have done without it. I don't have much to say. I don't really feel like this backup added much. Um, <laughs> all it did was remind us that Punchline is definitely a villain for the, you know, for this millennium in that she manipulates information and there was a time where a villain like that wouldn't be very believable, but now it's far too believable. Um, and maybe that's what I don't like about her, despite, you know, the in, maybe in addition to the fact that she's very derivative. Um, but I, I just have a hard time, you know, wanting to read about a villain who is exploiting the ignorance and stupidity of others because they believe you know, the absolute nonsense and lies that are coming out of her mouth. Um, and that that's ultimately what we got here in the final panel is just us reminding how stupid people are. They can believe the, just believe things. Just look at the evidence, like look at the evidence of your own eyes. That's all you need to do is look at the fact she was right there alongside the Joker while he was killing people during the Joker war. That's enough. That's oh. enough for me. Yeah. So yeah, I could have, could have done without this. The art was inconsistent throughout don't like punchline as a character. And if anything, I, I like her less. Now, the, the more I read of her, the less I like her. So yeah. that's all I'll say. Well, I, I agree with you on that. I, I think they absolutely squandered uh, and they lost the opportunity to make punchline an interesting character. I think that this has been uh, just, I hate to say, I'll just say it. It's just, Ter- I found it terrible. I thought it was very badly put together. The punchline storyline, it it the punchline storyline absolutely dragged on way too long. I thought it was terribly written, terribly structured. I thought the characters were uninteresting. I think Bluebird. I mean, who? I mean, I'm out. Like I, I don't like Bluebird to begin with, and boy, did she come across like a moron here. I mean, at one point, and at one point, a blue, uh, punchline even pulls out Bluebird's nose ring. I mean, what kind of a fighter are you that your opponent? who's a glorified computer hacker can get close enough to you that pulls out your nose ring. And what the hell are you doing wearing a nose ring and you're a fighter anyway? Like, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm not a fan of Bluebird. It's a ridiculous character. Uh, but I, you know, from the beginning, it was obvious in when Punchline was first introduced that she could be utilized. Her, her It's her relationship with the Joker that made her interesting to me. And the fact that she might, I, I assumed early on, and I've said this when we reviewed early issues, that her most interesting aspect is being able to key into the key aspects aspects of social media and utilize social media to her advantage. And now that we've actually gotten to that point where she's doing precisely that, uh, she's just really, really uninteresting. And she's, and I find her, uh, oddly enough for myself, I personally found that she'd be more interesting when she, she still should be connected to the Joker in some way. She hasn't earned a place as being an A-lister. And the fact that she's getting her own comic now is she's going to continue the punchline, the Gotham game, number one coming this fall. Um, I don't, I guess, I guess they're going to try to build up and give her some, uh, 
you know, give her some some gravitas. You know, in this day and age, the idea that uh, somebody can manipulate the media and get away with crime after crime after crime. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about certain politicians that are capable of doing that on a regular basis. Uh, not that this is it's going to be a political uh, comic, but I mean, the I can believe that in principle. But frankly, I. What what Harley Quinn had that Punchline doesn't, Harley Quinn had something that I could latch on to and like. And she was, at some point, she was a psychopath that I could, there was some sympathy there that I could find and latch on to. Even if I, like even Poison Ivy, who is a psychopath, we just reviewed Poison Ivy number two, even though she's psychopathic, she's evil and I have issues with that. I, I know that there's good in Pamela Isley somewhere. And and, and I, there's still something interesting about it. But I have a heart, Punchline is genuinely unlikable on every single conceivable level. And she's a manipulator. And there's nothing else for me to latch on to where there's there's no there's absolutely no empathy that I can find to have for the character or relate to in any way. And that's why I just don't like her as a character anymore because of how badly, badly done this was. The opportunity they had the opportunity to make Punchline actually have a likable part of her character. Why couldn't you have made one aspect of Punchline likable? Have a friend that she actually, an actual friendship that she has. Somebody that actually cares for her. Somebody that she actually cares about. She's unlikable and she's irredeemable. She's got no relationships at all uh, that even bad bad guys don't know they're bad guys or don't necessarily know they're irredeemable. Uh, But Punchline, there's literally no redeeming quality about her at all no relationships she has no friends that that trust her nothing at all uh, I, I guess if they're going for a female joker uh, I, I guess uh, but this I don't know it just it, it, it hasn't worked for me and it's really squandered an opportunity yeah I, I mean I can't disagree she's yeah she's highly unlikable I, I'm disappointed much like yourself that she's getting her own series I think there are other characters vastly more deserving but that being said, in the hands of the right writer, maybe somebody can can come in and turn her around. You know, that's all that's all we can hope for. So anyway, let's move on. Up next, Multiversity Teen Justice number two, written by Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen. Art is by Marceau or Marco Faia. Colors by Enrica, Aaron, and Giolini. Letters by Carlos M. Manguel. What'd you think? I uh well it's just coming up now on the screen. I uh, this was uh, I, I enjoyed this better than the first issue uh, because it uh, got to know though the one main the one main character who is sort of uh, it's it's clear here that what's what we're getting involved into is sort of like the the Church of Blood or I guess the Church of the Sister Blood and um, oh sorry here and. Um, uh, it, uh, Raven and Raven and, uh, who's the other character? Sorry. Oh. Raven and Troy, uh, are, are sort of infiltrating or attempting to infiltrate the, the church of, I guess, church of blood or the church of sister blood or what have you. And, uh, in their, their, in their attempts to do that, they sort of, uh, it's, they're, uh, well, it's actually a decent amount of uh, of character work. I actually thought it worked better this time. I, I could follow it a little bit better. It wasn't as disjointed as I thought as as the first issue. I'm um, I actually even appreciated the fact that uh, writer uh, Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen 
I actually found it nice that they actually put the names of the characters when they appeared in some of the panels because I'm, I'm still getting to know these characters. And so I actually appreciated that. I actually appreciate being spoon fed a little bit on these newer, newer, uh, on the getting to know some of these uh, newer, newer characters. Um, there's still, uh, uh, the, sometimes the pages seem a little bit crowded. Uh, f for me, but I, one thing that I think that, that I could get into, and I did have to read this twice is sort of like the, these characters as, as teammates, they, they sure, I, I, they're kind of brats. They're, 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 there's an immaturity about them that they, they, they're constantly bickering, bickering and actually fighting with each other regularly. And, um, uh, but I guess they're doing it for fun. Uh, they're, they end up flying. Uh, it, it ends up that they end up flying all over uh, Supergirl. Supergirl and Robin end up, they end up uh, uh, going to the island nation of Zandia and confronting the same individuals that they fought last issue. Robin is, a, is more hot-headed, so, uh, I'm starting to see the characters more flushed out. Robert is more hot-headed. Super, uh, Supergirl is a little bit more level-headed. And uh, we we don't see in this issue... Uh, we don't see in this issue the, the main story come together. I'm still a little bit lost. We, we don't see Sinestra in this issue. Uh, I which is she appeared at the at the end of last issue this female version of Sinestro so I don't know what happened to her I'm not entirely clear uh I'm not entirely clear um uh how sister blood is connected to this larger the sort of larger narrative uh in in terms of because I'm getting the sense that there's some kind of uh alien threat um, uh, and because there's they're also on Domus Amoris which is a planet of home of the star sapphires and I'm not really sure why they're there but I'm sure because we've already got Sinestra that we're going to have some star sapphires as well and I'm wondering if star sapphires are going to be women or if they're going to be men because everything's gender swapped but I'm, I'm still trying to get a handle in terms of what is going on so if I have one one little nitpick I'm. I will have to be invested for at least another issue, or maybe more, to figure out exactly how all this connective tissue actually connects. Because I haven't. I still haven't figured out how Sinestra connects with Sister Blood, or if Sinestra is controlling the Church of Blood, and how that's connected to the Star Sapphires out in the in the, in the on another planet, and how that's connected to this island nation. So. Um, clearly a story is being built here and we're just, a, we're just two issues in and I've got to give it more time. There is character work that's being done here and, and I'm slowly getting more intrigued. Uh, and, uh, but this, this does require a commitment. This isn't, uh, I will say this about writers, uh, I, Danny Lauren, I, Ivan Cohen, they're not, they don't spoon feed the readers. Uh, they, they, I think I think they challenge they challenge us a little bit, uh, but I'm up to the challenge and the information is there and and I read it a couple times and I, I got the gist of it. But I we're still at the point for me I still have more questions than answers by the end of this second issue. How, how do you feel about it? 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. More questions than answers, but you're, you're right. So, so we get a lot more character work in this second issue, which that's enough for me to, to keep wanting to read it. Um, the problem is in terms of you know what's going on, because there are really three different storylines. We have what's going on on the island of Zandia that you mentioned, you know, they, they head over there and find out that all the people have been aged up and, you know, what's going on with that. So we have that storyline going on. We have the storyline going on with the, uh, uh, off in, um, in space, the planet of star sapphires, what's going on there. And then obviously the sisterhood of, of blood. Yeah. What, which of these storylines, is it all the storylines? Like what is Sinestra t- tied into? Like, again, in terms of what's going on, yeah, much more questions than answers. So again, I, I mean, I know first issues are really hard to, to do, um, but I feel like the character work that was in this issue should have been in the first issue. Um, and maybe then you wouldn't have had to take as much space for the character moments in this issue and could have got us further along with the narrative. So I don't, I don't know. It, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say if that would have been more successful or not, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been more successful. What's clear is the same thing that we said about, um, the, the writers, the creators, when we talked about the first issue is how much they care about these characters, how much they care about this story. So it definitely feels like we've been dropped into the middle of a very big story and how it's all going to play out and how, how it's all going to work. We don't yet know. Um, but yeah, based on the strength of the character work in this particular issue, I'm in for at least you know one more. The other part of it is is this. And it's uh, something else that is kind of a hook in a way. You know, these are gender swapped versions of characters that we're familiar with, but that doesn't mean that their personalities are the same, right? So Raven here may not have the same personality of the female Raven that, that you know, we're used to reading about. Same thing with, with Troy. So uh, I do like that aspect because it, it kind of sub- subverts expectations. You can't help because you know these names and you know these characters you know, the, the other version of them from Earth Zero, you can't help but think, oh, Raven is Raven. Troy is Donna Troy. You know, Robin is uh, is Tim Drake. You can't help but think that and sort of expect them to act that way. So then when they act, quote unquote, out of character, it's kind of a nice surprise. They're not really acting out of character because are, they are different characters, but you can't help, but at least I couldn't expect them to sort of act like their main universe counterparts. So, Yeah. Uh, definitely better than the first issue. I'm in for one more. So uh, let's move on. Monkey Prince number six is up next. Jean Luen Yang is the writer. Bernard Chang is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Janice Chang uh, on letters. Uh, this was a fun issue. We know that Marcus is in Amnesty Bay. We know that his parents are working for Black Manta, and they basically – uh, imbue the uh, silver horn demon into like a crab, like a hermit crab. And it attacks the high school that Marcus is at. Obviously the parents don't know that that's what black Mance is going to do. But when they're fleeing after Marcus successfully overcomes some of his fears and defeats the crab or shrinks it back down to normal size, he sees black Manta fleeing with a couple of his henchmen. And right away he recognizes that, th- that it's his parents now, I mistakenly thought a couple issues ago when he rescued them uh, when they were working for the Penguin that Marcus knew that they were uh, his parents. He did not. But then we saw last issue on the trip to Amnesty Bay. He saw them hide from Superman, uh, and that kind of raised suspicions in his mind, and now those suspicions have been confirmed. So I love that aspect of the story that's going to come in the next arc as Marcus is going to have to try to 
confront his parents or figure out some way um, to at least have a conversation with them. I'm assuming he's a superhero and his parents are, super, are you know, you say supervillains, you don't have any powers or, you know, mad villain scientists or what have you. So I like that aspect of the story. Uh, other than that, the first sort of third of the issue is learning about uh, the monkey prince's true father. Um, and so it, it's definitely building off Chinese mythology and Chinese lore. Uh, it's very simplified, I think, in a lot of ways, because if I'm not mistaken, Chinese mythology is really complicated. Um, so I like that the creators are getting to put you know some of their own heritage in here. Um, Jean Luen Yang is going to be on the show soon to, uh, to talk about the first arc of Monkey Prince. So looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, throughout the strength of the series uh, is the same as what I said from the beginning. It's that uh, they're taking this complicated mythology and folding it into the DCU and making something that's very representative of their culture that any uh, DC fans that are uh, of that same heritage can probably uh, find a lot of things that are familiar and interesting to them. So I, I like that aspect of it. Plus, at the end, we we do find out because we're told throughout that the um, the original Monkey Prince, you know, he he disappeared in a battle with Darkseid that happened in Monkey Prince Zero, um, and he's still around, but they don't know where. They figure he's outside of of like the regular DC reality. And so on the last page, we do see him floating in the Phantom Zone, which kind of hints that we'll um, we'll see more of him coming up soon so uh what'd you think <laughs> I, I had no idea that was him f floating in the phantom zone i mean i'm a, i'm making that assumption it doesn't yeah, no, say i, that I think is. you're right i think you're right to be honest with you i i didn't know what that was i i, I now it, i guess it is a monkey upside down holding his knees but i my, my god my eyes must be playing tricks on me but now and now i see it it's, it's almost like an illusion to me but i didn't realize that but yeah I, I guess that makes sense problem is that they they dc keeps depicting the phantom zone in in different ways it's it's the effects of the phantom zone are always depicted differently by different artists now there's no consistency in the dc universe uh from title to title and how they depict the phantom zone but uh but no that makes sense i um I enjoyed the, 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 I, for the life of me, I did not remember reading. I, I know I've read Monkey Prince issue zero, but I did not remember if, uh, his father fighting Darkseid. I, I don't remember that at all. So I'm going to have to pull that issue and because I know I own it, I'll have to pull it and reread it because, <laughs> my God, it's pretty pathetic when I forget a comic book that I, I'm sure I, that, that just came out like last year. So, but uh, I enjoyed it. This was a, this was a good, uh, this was a good recap. Uh, apparently I needed it. <laughs> I mean, uh, these things have happened and I've apparently read them before and I don't remember, but uh, um, I, I, Again, I love the premise. I love the premise that he, he, here's this monkey prince. He doesn't even know that his parents are essentially constantly working for supervisions because they're scientists and now they're working for Black Manta. And uh, they build Black Manta, this device that harnesses some crazy magical energy that brings forth a silver horn king. And I, I thought it was a... I, there, there's some silliness here that you really got to... That maybe if I'm if I'm being really nitpicky for the mainstream DC universe, it lacks a little bit of verisimilitude because I'm we are to believe that the Black Manta is so happy with the Monkey Prince's parents that have created this brought forth the Silverhorn King that the Black Manta be, beware Atlantis for today Black Manta attacks at precisely the same time that 
the the trench the the, the trench king decides to attack Atlantis, and uh, and but if if Black Manta was going to attack Atlantis, why did the crab creature attack Amnesty Bay and not Atlantis? It doesn't make any sense. Black Manta specifically said, "Black Manta's, you know, Atlantis, here we come." Black Manta, you know, attacks. And uh, but they don't go to Atlantis. Instead, they go to Amnesty Bay, and, and they're of all things. What are the what? It seems oddly forced and coincidental that they're attacking this school that happens to be the same school that Monkey Prince is, is that uh, Mr. Uh, Young Shugelshen is at. So I thought that seemed a little bit uh, forced. I mean, it's it makes for a fun comic. I get it, but it just I, that really threw me off. Then, then I'm not sure why they showed the creatures of the trench, and I'm I was a little bit confused because we got Dragon Town in Atlantis. I'm not sure what was the purpose of showing these dragon creatures in Atlantis. Are they somehow going to be brought forth or part of the Monkey Prince lore? I I didn't know that Atlantis had dragon creatures living in a portion of Atlantis on, in the, it says the Dragon Town neighborhood of Atlantis. I didn't know Atlantis had a Dragon Town. <laughs> That's, um, uh, but maybe I missed that in Aquaman comics, but anyway, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, it's, again, it's different. I'll be honest, I don't need this to fit neatly into continuity in the mainstream DC universe, because this is not why I'm reading this comic. I, I get it. This is I'm trying to attract new readers. It's fun. It's crazy. It's kind of all over the place. I actually like the fact that Black Manta is just playing evil and being a jerk, and they're not trying to, you know, whatever the heck they're doing over in Aquaman. I, I like this Black Manta anyway. Keep him evil. Keep him simple-minded and evil. Yeah, that's where he's more interesting. So, uh, this is this is fun. You know, we, we said one thing about... Uh, uh, Yang with his writing, he was really fun with uh, with Batman Superman, and uh, he he knows how to he knows how to script uh, a fun action packed arc. And every single issue we've gotten out of him, and this is issue six already. There's always action. There's always something crazy or insane happening. So yeah, I'm I'm always entertained here. And while I have these kind of questions where I'm sort of maybe shaking my head and wondering what's going on. It, there is some fun to this, and I, I love the fact that he's discovering that his parents aren't who he thought they were, and this really, really works. And at the same time, we get to see all the villains at different places in, in the DC universe, and I, that's such a cool concept, having parents that work for various super villains. It, it continues to work for me, so uh, kudos to him. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we've seen a, a Dragon King neighborhood in Atlantis. I think these are things that they're adding and you know, yeah. it, it sort of uh, dovetails into this whole idea of bringing in some Chinese culture. Uh, it makes sense. You know, I mean, yeah. Chinatown's in any number of cities in the U.S. So why wouldn't Atlanta have its own version of, of Chinatown, you know, Dragontown? Um, yeah. So yeah, I, th I think that works as far as why they're there. Yeah. I got to think that it must tie into the lore of, uh, of the uh, original dragon prince or dragon king or, or, uh, or monkey prince, rather the original monkey prince, monkey king, Marcus's you know spiritual father, whoever that is. It's got to tie into that in some way. I got to think. Uh, all right, up next we have remnants of the past, Nubia, queen of the Amazons, issue number two. Stephanie Phillips is the writer. Aletha Martinez penciler. Mark Morales and John Libesay <clears throat> handle the inks. Ale Alex Guimaras on colors. Becca Carey on letters. I thought this was okay. Uh, a little bit of a time jump. Uh, after the mudslide that 
Uh, Nubia got caught in last time. She, she's in the hospital when this issue starts off, um, which doesn't really bode well for how powerful of a character she is. If she can get taken out by a mudslide, yeah, uh, we get a lot of we get a lot of flashback <laughs> That's from exactly her right. previous life when huh. she was um, a, a princess. Princess Zahava is her name. Um, somewhere in you know, princess somewhere in Africa. Um, she's got this amulet that she was uh, given that they're not sure of its intentions. Like Hawk girl shows up or Hawk woman shows up um, talking about whether or not it, it might be the cause of some of the things that have happened. We get a little politics with Brazil saying, why was Nubia there? Is, you know, is this her fault? She was here meddling in, in our country. And uh, then for some unbeknownst reason, these, Unknown attackers are amassing outside the hospital where Nubia is. So her along with the other Amazons go um, and attack. And then we find out that one of the people that's attacking is this Zilla character who I'm not 100% sure, but somebody from her past when she was a princess is how I took that. But I might be misreading that. I'm not I honestly don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. It didn't it didn't sound familiar to me, but I have I'd have to reread previous issues. If that if her if she was mentioned before, I don't remember her. But yeah, I mean, but again, I mean, this is only the second issue. So I, I feel like we're still in the setup phase, so to speak. Um, but I, I, I loved Nubia when they started focusing more on her. But I, I do feel like the story's getting a little I don't want to say convoluted, but it's getting, it's getting big. It's getting, there's so many characters and we're flashing back through time and it's, it's hard. It's hard to remember. Um, again, maybe it's just because you and I read so many comics. So I, I sort of wish this was a little more focused. Um, I think, you know, that obviously the trial of the Amazons, we had our issues with that. Um, and yeah, not, I mean, not every story needs to have uh, 50 characters in it. Um, yeah, but it sure feels like DC writers think that it does currently. So, um, yeah, it I, jury's still out on this. I, again, I thought it was average, um, but I, I still really like the character. I think the art is fantastic. It's the best part of the issue. Uh, I really loved it, especially the scene where Yara Floor and two of the other Esqueda, uh Amazonians are walking into the hospital to see uh, to visit Nubia when she's there. Um, I just, I just love the swagger that Aletha Martinez brings to that yeah. panel. Sexiness so. there's a, definitely is. There's a sexiness to the Escazita tribe that rivals any other, any other tribe of Amazons. I think I'm beholden. If I had to join an Amazonian tribe and, uh, I'll just, I'll just self-identify as a woman and join the Escazita tribe since apparently I, since apparently I don't require a vagina anymore to be a woman on Paradise Island. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not not to annoy anyone but i mean hey i mean uh, to, to each their own let's have some fun you know but yeah so yeah the arts where it shines especially where this issue shines especially in the fight at the end um so yeah um jury's still out on this i'm still interested i'm still intrigued but i i, I do hope for a more focused narrative going forward so yeah what are your thoughts other than uh, self-identifying as a woman yeah <laughs> <laughs> Call me an Amazon. Yeah, I'll be a lesbian for a few years. What the hell? Um, but no, uh, I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the first part. My my, I like I like the origins of what what we know to be Nubia's first life. That the life that Nubia lived when she was a young princess in Madagascar 
presumably thousands of years ago. The time frame is undefined. And she uh, was, you already indicated her name was uh, Zahava at the time, Princess Zahava. And she was uh, a young princess who has a lot in common with uh, Diana uh, in that she was uh, a young princess who desired to be a warrior. She doesn't want to be queen, but her father wants to move her away from being a warrior princess because he wants her to, she's going to be queen one day and she's going to rule one day. And, and, uh, but he says to her that, you know, only you can find your destiny. And so it's, it's a very, um, it's a, you could tell she had a very good family, a, a loving mother, a, a loving father. Uh, she even had a potential love interest, someone who potentially loved her. But we also know that ultimately the person who will grow to be her potential love interest, this uh, 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 Azariah, uh, we, we know that this Azariah character who she spars with ends up ultimately, I think it's, he's the same one who ends up betraying her and uh, killing her at, at, after which, presumably after she is killed, she is resurrected and comes through the Well of Souls and is the first Amazon to come through the Well of Souls to become one of the first Amazons on, on Themyscira. And so and we know that. So, And maybe that leads to my first potential criticism is that, well, you know, this origin is a little out of whack uh we maybe should have you know is not quite in the right order but uh it's easy to catch on to and it's um if there's so the origin's fine i mean we're getting that where where i think that where i think that there's some struggle here and you absolutely nailed it on the head is what's with all these characters uh you know what's with all these characters i mean first of all a mudslide takes out nubia come on Come on. I mean, I'm reminded of, uh, I remember Greg Rucka, and I said this before, Greg Rucka one time when he first started writing Superman, he said the best advice he ever got on writing Superman, somebody told him, he said, remember that you have no, that you have no budget. You have an unlimited budget. In other words, the limit is your imagination. And I mean, use your imagination. If you're going to take out Nubia, this powerful Amazonian queen, I mean, do you, come on. A mudslide? You know, again, just I realize they're there for climate change and, and the Amazons are there for political reasons and what have you. But but still, think bigger. Think think bigger. Think more creatively. And uh, and I mean that in the nicest way. But this is Nubia. This is a powerful Amazon. You've got all these gorgeous Amazons there. Too many of them, by the way. You don't the whole tribe, Nubia, when you do something, you don't need the whole tribe with you. Wonder Woman doesn't bring half of the mascara with her when she's when she's on an adventure nubia you're the queen i know that you know it's odd that a queen's going to be running around doing all what you're doing anyway arguably you 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 should have appoint people to do that but if you're going to insist on doing it yourself it makes it makes it more fun when when there's fewer people i would have liked to have seen just yara floor hawk girl and nubia that's all we needed i don't know why we don't need to get to know this supporting cast it serves no narrative purpose why do we need to know bia and all these other ones we don't need to know them we we don't need them that they don't they don't contribute to it they just take up space and they we, we get all this superfluous dialogue that really doesn't really move the narrative and and um again not a lot of action here we get we, we did get some substance again, some origins of Nubia's past life. Uh, but then, but then what happens is nothing. We get Nubia waking up in a hospital. 
which you're never going to convince me they're going to put her in a hospital in Madagascar or in wherever the hell in 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 Brazil. Uh, you think they why don't why not take her to the Esquisita tribe? Take her to the Esqui so we can see the Esquisita. Let this let this amazing artist show off the, show off their skills uh, drawing the Esquisita tribe. Uh, what do they, we we know? There's a healing ray on Themyscira. What's the equivalent of the healing ray, healing ray in the in, or the purple healing ray in the Esquisita tribe? You have an opportunity to do that. You didn't do that because, well, you wanted to have this big battle in the hospital. Why don't have a big battle in the in the in the midst of the Brazilian tribe? We get to see more of Yara Flores' uh, tribe. I don't know. I just again, it's another example of me playing script doctor. That these things just kind of—it's so obvious to me. You're actually in Brazil and you're having an action sequence outside a hospital and not and not with the Escazita tribe and in the in the in the jungles of Brazil where you can actually do those things. These are missed opportunities to me. Uh, that if we're going to have, we're going to have all these Amazons in one place. We shouldn't have them outside a hospital fighting a bunch of, me- you know, odd, odd mechanical beasts. And then this Zila Z- Z- character. I mean, there's definitely action here, which is good. And I think that this is an improvement. Stephanie Williams has gotten a little bit better here because one of the th- criticisms of Stephanie Williams' uh, six first six issues, or I guess six or seven issues of Nubia, was that. Uh, there were, we, we got entire issues where there was very, very little, there was very little action, far too much exposition, very dialogue heavy, uh, which was unnecessary and superfluous in many of the issues. Here she's gotten a little bit better. She's at least learned, Stephanie Williams has at least learned that you can have dialogue between characters while they're fighting. So at least give us some action scenes while they're having a conversation. We got some of that here. Again, how much did the narrative move forward? It really didn't. All this to get to the end when Nubia basically wakes up in a hospital and then gets into a, a kerfuffle and then meets Zila or this Zila character who's asking for the amulet that that uh, Nubia had in her past life. But so this is prog- progressing. The art's fantastic. I'm still involved. Uh, but, you know, again, like you said, maybe too many players here. I mean, too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. All right, let's move on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail, Flashpoint Beyond number three. This is from writers Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams, and Tim Sheridan. We have art from Zermonico and Michael Yanin, Ramulo Fajardo Jr. and Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, Clockwork Killer Chapter 3, The Secret of the Superman. What do you think? Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, the... Flashpoint Beyond, the heart, the essence of Flashpoint Beyond is that there is this clock, this clockwork uh, killer that's going around and killing various uh, 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 superpowered beings that have some connection or capabilities of manipulating the the space time continuum, whether it's space or time or light or, or speed, those types of things. And, and, in the midst of all this clockwork killer going around and doing that, we have this Flashpoint Batman who has has woken up. The Flashpoint universe is still around. It's still here. Why does this Flashpoint universe still exist? It's not supposed to exist. And uh, and so Flashpoint Batman is hell-bent on basically ensuring its destruction to go back because, I mean, it was originally – it's not supposed to exist. It's it's an aberration. And so, so in, in Thomas Wayne's mind – in his mind, nothing matters. 
nothing matters except let's destroy this. I'm I'm not supposed to exist. This my Flashpoint universe isn't so supposed 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 to exist. So in the in the Flashpoint Batman's mind, even a Clockwork Killer, who cares? It's once this universe dies, who cares? And so this this idea that nothing matters comes smack dab against the force of Subject One, who is the Superman of the Flashpoint universe, and and because the Superman of Superman of the Flashpoint universe, this Subject One is just like our Superman, and his idea is that everything matters, everything matters, and and that's he's the polar opposite. Of Thomas Wayne's thinking. And this issue starts off with quite spectacularly, in my mind, in a very cinematic scene showing Superman, Kal-El, rocketed off the Doom Planet Krypton, but with a major twist. Many rockets are sent flying out of uh, Krypton. So it's not just Kal-El that's sent to another planet uh, to look for life, uh, apparently. But it's it's other people and uh, other children and other rockets. And, and in the Flashpoint universe, we know that the rocket doesn't land on a far... On a, on a field outside of Kansas of Jonathan and Martha Kent, but it crashes smack dab into the city of Metropolis and kills millions, kills millions of people. And uh, as a consequence of that, uh, you know, uh, flash forward to the future, Sarge Steele releases these secret government documents, uh, which puts the blame on the on the destruction of Metropolis on this Superman subject one character, who right away uh, is, uh, you know, a person of suspicion. And Last issue ended with Superman, Subject One, confronting Flashpoint Batman, who was basically battling against sort of like Captain Boomerang of the Flashpoint universe. And this Superman confronts Thomas Wayne and says, you know, he stops him from killing Captain Boomerang because this Flashpoint Batman's going back to his old ways of u- utilizing lethal force because nothing matters. It doesn't matter if I kill. It doesn't It doesn't matter about Gilda Dent, who's in Arkham Asylum, worried about her son. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. So Superman says everything matters. And he takes he takes. Uh, Thomas Wayne and he takes them uh, he takes Thomas Wayne to a sanctu- sanctuary where they meet up with Poison Ivy and and Superman shows Flashpoint Batman the message that he got from his father basically saying that look uh, if you're receiving this my son it means you have survived and basically get ready we're going to join you and it's going to be a Kryptonian invasion and there's they're five days away from a Kryptonian invasion and I got to tell you, man, this this completely threw me. I did not see this coming. As if Flashpoint Batman doesn't have enough on his plate, he's figuring out a ways to what the hell happened. To, you know, Barry's dead. Uh, uh, this issue ends with uh, Thon end up being killed by the Clockwork Killer. So even Thon, the Reverse Flash, is dead. And uh, and you've got all that happened between Wonder Wonder Woman killing Aquaman. So that Wonder the uh, the uh, Amazons are are going to be attacking Atlantis and the rest of the world. Now in the midst of this world and chaos, we're five days away from a Kryptonian invasion. So literally the Trinity is a mess here between Superman, Wonder Woman and Batman. And then you throw in uh, Aquaman flashpoint universe is an absolute chaotic mess of a world right now. And we're only three issues into the six issue series. Full, full props to Jeff, writer Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams and Tim Sheridan. Again, none of us really know exactly 
you know, who's who's scripting what pages and what dialogue. But, you know, they, they sure work well as a team. And I really hope that Tim Sheridan in particular is going to pick up and learn something from it. And Jeremy Adams is already doing pretty good on The Flash because taking their lessons out of this series moving forward. This is so much fun. I'm so looking forward to what's going to happen here. Uh who ends up who ends up killing? Who is this clockwork killer? There we get another clue as to who the clockwork killer is because apparently at the at the at one point at the beginning uh, you know, he shows up in front of the penguin, the reverse flash, and he, he, he basically s- says that, you know, he's after me again. So Thon says he's after me again. Well, again. So that means whoever is the clockwork killer is has pre has in the past gone after Thawne. So that's another clue as to who the clockwork killer is. And I'm just talking out loud. I'm not sure you, you know, readers and people listening can go through the, the suspect list as to who that could possibly be. But I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, I, I love the art here. The art uh, is uh, by Exomanico is, is fan- and Mikhail Janine is, is great. Colors by uh, uh, Romeo Fajuda Jr. and Jody Belair. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely, I- I'm loving this. Uh, this is, uh, there's, there's even hints here. It's tied into the larger, uh, start, we're starting to see some ties into the larger uh, multiverse, the larger, the, the, the potential, the, the great darkness as well. Um, and I'm, Gilda Dent, who's actually in Arkham Asylum right now, who who basically scarred her own face. Somebody has appeared to her, and we're not really sure who it is, but uh, it appears that I'm not sure who it is. I'm not sure who it is. Is it the Clockwork Killer? Is it? Um, uh, I don't know. But man, I'm I'm so curious. I, I have a sneaking suspicion it might be. Is it going to be Doctor Manhattan's? Uh, is it going to be the the young uh, Sally and, and Kent or, or Kent from the from the Watchmen universe? I, I'm not sure, but in in any event, I'm I got so many I got again more questions than answers. But I, I love that Jeff Johns is really wedding our continues to sort of throw expand upon the mystery and we get more of Corky Baxter and, and the time masters at the end because the death of Thawne throws more time ver- reverberations throughout the time the timeline and it disrupts the timeline in the end and uh, and that's something that uh, the time masters take note of as they're sort of locked in, in hyper time they're lost in hyper time and on on the final page Hyper Time has enough problems with Thomas Wayne still around. Uh, we, we see Hyper Time in total chaos. And I just want to say that I looked at all the images on the final page in terms of all the disruptions into Hyper Time. And there's three images that I don't know who they are. But the other images include Booster Gold, uh, an image of Action Comics number one. The image of death of Superman. We see Swamp Thing. We see the death of Barry Allen in the original Crisis. We see a picture of Flash and Rebirth. We see the formation of the Justice Society. We see Pariah infected by the Great Darkness. We see the Mime and Marionette. We see Doctor Manhattan. We see Star Girl in the JSA. We see Superboy Prime going crazy in Infinite Crisis. We see a picture of Hal Jordan. We see John Byrne Superman. We see the cre- the Creature Commandos. We see Flashpoint Aquaman fighting Wonder Woman. We see Barry and Wally. Uh, just like in the rebirth special and there's three other images that I cannot specifically identify so 
everything Jeff Johns does in particular is on purpose. And so I'm not sure what all those images necessarily mean because those images didn't just didn't just take place in hypertime. They took place in our mainstream DC universe over the last 10, 15 years. And so, man, so much to, to, to talk about. Uh, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought that I loved the this version of Superman. Like, I think he's really interesting, obviously a, a very different version. Um, and so that was my favorite part of the story. Um, I don't know how much this particular issue moved forward the overall narrative, if at all. Um, feel like it really, really did much. Uh, it's like we're introducing new aspects with this idea of Kryptonians as as world conquerors, which you know that's certainly not a new new aspect to, to the Kryptonians. Uh, we've seen that aspect of them before in stories, so I think that 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 works and can be pretty pretty interesting. So we'll have to see how that all plays out going forward. But yeah, overall, I was pretty uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, don't <laughs> don't have any idea based on you know. It started off as a street level mystery, and now we're talking about Kryptonian invasions and all kinds of craziness, you know, going on for the story going forward. So, it, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm very curious to see where it goes from here, and uh, I'm enjoying this. I mean, I knew I would like it, but I'm enjoying it even more than I than I thought I would, which obviously is a good thing. So, we'll we'll have to see how it continues to play out uh, from here. So. Uh, well, that's going to do it in terms of the uh, the regular issues. The site that I normally get all my information is not working today, but uh, I'm going to try to use a different one here. It looks like uh, we do have some collections that are do we not, out uh, today. Uh, is, we didn't review uh, Dark Crisis 2. No? That, we didn't? Mm. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I don't Did think so. Yeah, we skipped Dark Crisis. Did we? Uh... Okay. Well, fire away then. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we did. Well, no, we did. I, I I'm pretty sure we, we never we never talked about uh, Dark Crisis. Number yeah, two. definitely. Go take it away. <laughs> well, I mean that was kind of a big one. That's why I thought sometimes for those for those people listening, sometimes it has occasionally there's been mistakes made and and we've actually reviewed issues that were put put in the wrong week. Because we're given these preview copies in 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 weekly uh, segments, and sometimes, occasionally, they'll an issue will be in the wrong segment. That's happened uh, once in a while, uh, but I'm pretty sure Dark Crisis comes out this week. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. I, I, yeah, I don't know how I I yeah. had it open earlier. I must have accidentally closed it and didn't realize. So, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, well. Um, uh, it, it, this issue, uh, in this issue, uh, and by the way, just multiple issues. There's a, a, a great, great cover, uh, cover B with uh, Yara Floor with Batman, uh, with or I, I guess Chase Fox Batman with Yara Floor, which are the are the legacy characters. There's another great issue showing the Justice Society, uh, and I, I think these the themes of these uh, covers are actually quite good, and and I love that they're actually related to the actual to some degree to the content or the idea of legacy, which which actually I think 
there's a, that thematic connection, which is good. Great, great cover of Batman, uh, Yara Flora and, and Superboy. I guess, I guess that's Jace Fox, John Kent and Yara Flora. And another issue with Deathstroke in front of a burning uh, Teen Titans uh, tower. And uh, of course, we have the, uh, the standard issue itself with uh, Nightwing f- uh, fighting uh, Deathstroke. In this issue, this issue starts off with with essentially uh, Pariah basically uh, Pariah is being spoken to by the Great Darkness and the, the Great Darkness has manipulated Pariah and uh, Pariah was that this person who was sort of like the person that whose whose original world was destroyed in the original crisis on infinite earths and the Great Darkness has promised the Pariah that look if you help us do what we want to do we will restore the original infinite crisis but in order to do that, we need to destroy Earth one, Earth Zero. We you, we need your help, Pariah, to, to do that. And at least that's what Pariah has going on in his head. And so that's what Pariah is trying to manipulate and try trying to, to cause uh, to happen. And what Pariah is doing is that Pariah is inside the head of Slade Wilson Deathstroke. Pariah is actually uh, mentally manipulating Deathstroke, and that was a little confusing at first because it surprised me because I was always unsure. I was unsure if Deathstroke was just insane as a result of the Lazarus pits when he was he was killed by Talia in Shadow War, and then he was resurrected in the Lazarus pits. I assume that I assume that. Uh, Slade Wilson was basically insane because of the Lazarus pits, but it appears that he's being driven crazy a little bit by Pariah talking to him, and he's been manipulated by Pariah through the help of that, I guess, the the Great Darkness. And as a result of that, uh, we do know uh, that you know, this is the worst kept secret that obviously a new crisis is brewing. And the idea here is to cause chaos. Pariah wants Deathstroke to create a crisis, a mini crisis, by creating havoc. The Justice League dead. The Justice League were taken off the, the playing field. The only one that really survived the death of the Justice League was Black Adam. And basically the remnants, the, these legacy characters, John John Kent's vain attempt to putting together a Justice League somewhat pathetically last issue and that's probably in the words of uh, Black Adam uh, he, although he never put it that way Black Adam was not impressed with what uh, John Kent with the team that John Kent put together and what's clear here what Deathstroke makes clear is that heroes all over the world from Firestorm to Jackson Hyde Yara Floor Robin uh, all over the world even in, in Kandak where Black Adam is they're being attacked heroes are being attacked all over the world and that's by in That's by design. And what is fantastic about this issue is this is an absolutely deadly and visceral attack by Slade. This this Slade Wilson is pulling no punches, attacking Titan's Tower. He put a bullet into the head of the changeling Beast Boy last issue. Uh, Surprisingly enough, Beast Boy apparently is still alive, uh, which is really hard to believe because he got a bullet to the brain. But apparently Beast Boy must have a pretty hard head. And... um, uh, Slade Wilson just basically throws, you know, bullet right to the face. He'll live, but I think this one's going to scar. And he just throws the body of uh, of Beast Boy right in front of Nightwing, and and Nightwing just goes right after Deathstroke. And the scenes here are just epic, showing the eyes, uh, the eyes, and the and the and the attitude, and the and the determination of Nightwing, and the and the indifference, and the and the evil of, of Deathstroke. And the, the the fight scenes here are just 
are really good. Everything's on fire. Everything, uh, the coloring here is just fantastic by, uh, I think it's, uh, is it Sanchez? Yeah, Alejandro Sanchez. Alejandro fantastic coloring. The 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 fight scenes here are just epic. The double page spread with with Nightwing and Deathstroke, and you know what I love about this is Nightwing takes out Deathstroke. He wins the first round, and you know we we talk a lot. We 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 went through that entire Robin series about you know the big tournament and you know who's the best fighter. It's Connor Hawk and everything else. Well, I tell you what, could Connor Hawk take down Deathstroke? I think that's open for debate. Uh, but I love the fact here that this is Nightwing. And, and Nightwing was Black Adam's choice to, to, to basically lead. And he's showing his leadership here. He's taken out Deathstroke. And, but Deathstroke holds all the cards. And Deathstroke basically tells him, look, I'm here to take you out. And so basically, I kill you. Everyone else can live. We're all going to go home, but you're, you're being taken out. And Nightwing is prepared to sacrifice his life. Say, fine, if you're telling me that if, you, if, I, give my, if I let you kill me, everyone else is going to be safe, you'll let the kids go because he wants to protect the students and everything else. And basically, that's the deal he makes with Deathstroke. And so, you know, Nightwing is sitting there. All right, get it over, get it over with you, old bastard. And, um, of course, before that can happen, in, in what is, for me, the most heroic moment of John Kent since he was aged up happens in this issue, in my opinion. John Kent jumps in front of the bullets and saves Nightwing from being killed by Deathstroke. That, to me, uh, was the most heroic uh, thing. The way that I, maybe it was just the way I read this, but it actually kind of gave me goosebumps. And that was the first time that, any, that John Kent has done anything as an adult to actually make me go, that's cool. This was a cool scene. I loved it. And and then and John Kent basically said, you know, he just says, you missed. And uh, and the Nightwing says, you got your dad's timing. And <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's and the dialogue was just spot on, you know, spot on. And uh, Nightwing says, this looks like a job for. And then, uh, of course, uh, John Kent, you know, scolds him and says, that's my line as he uh, as he takes out more of the. Uh, more of the secret society that was fighting alongside Deathstroke. And it's just, the, the, the fighting is just visceral. And Cyborg Superman comes in because Deathstroke was prepared for John Kent to show up. And, I mean, the fighting was just, I mean, the, the scenes are just excellent. This was action-packed. I, I just, abs I thoroughly enjoyed this. I just thought a shit-eating grin on my face. Uh this was so well done and you could see what, what I particularly liked, which, which surprised me. I thought I was, I, as I said, I was unsure if Deathstroke was just poisoned by the Lazar spit or was it something more? And it is something more. He's got pariah beacon in his head. Deathstroke had a, had a superior strategic position. Even with John, John Kent is distracted by cyborg Superman. Nightwing is, is is vulnerable all of the titans are vulnerable they're weakened they could be killed they could be taken out by deathstroke's forces they could be taken out but pariah specifically tells deathstroke no we need them we need them uh basically don't kill them we need them uh bring 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 the dark army you know bring my dark army to uh do not kill the superheroes. I need them. Remember your mission. So chaos, create a crisis. Bring my dark army to you. And I'm not, 
I'm not really sure why Pariah needs them. And because the question I have here, because this seems awfully convenient, because even uh, even one, uh, I think it was uh, even one of the other villains says to Deathstroke, what the hell are you doing? Why are we leaving? Let's kill them. We have an opportunity. Why should we give this up? And he's right. And Deathstroke just says, do it. Let's get out of here. And so they leave. But what's what I'm wondering here is, as I'm looking at this, is why... If Pariah wants to take out Earth-1 and destroy Earth-1, why would you want to leave the heroes on Earth-1? Why not let Deathstroke take them out? What would be the motivation? What does what, what plot point necessitates the heroes, the remaining heroes, being alive in order for... Because wouldn't that the remaining heroes being alive and capable of combating and fighting against Pariah go against his plans to destroy Earth designate zero? It just seems odd to me why Pariah would think that. So there's clearly there's some plot points here and pieces that we're still not privy to, we're still not aware of, but I'm really curious as to what's going on. But it's uh, uh, Deathstroke and, his, uh, and the rest of the Secret Society, they ultimately take off. And in a pretty cool epic battle, Superboy, uh, I call him Superboy, sorry, John Kent, Superman, takes out Cyborg Superman in quite epic fashion. But it doesn't impress Black Adam. Black Adam says, look, I told you you guys aren't good enough. John Kent, you're a joke. Uh, you, you didn't, uh, you failed. I knew you'd fail. And Nightwing, I thought you were better than this. Uh, so Black Adam's even disappointed in Nightwing. John Kent says to Black Adam, says, well, if you can think you can do such a better job, why don't you do it? And Black Adam says, thank you very much. <laughs> I will do a better job. And yes, I'm going to teach you guys. I'm going to form the team. I'm going to lead. And I love that aspect of this. I did not see this coming. I was actually worried. I was I was actually prepared for Joshua Williamson to do the cliche thing and say, you know, have John Kent be the leader and do this and this and blah, 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 blah. And maybe that'll end up being the case. But I actually like the fact that, no, let's get more aggressive. We got Black Adam. We need, we need maybe a little bit of evil, a little bit of darkness to fight darkness. And I know at the end of the day, we're probably going to have the light and Superman win the day and over the great darkness. I get it. But at this point, we bring on the lightning. Bring on Black Adam. Somebody with an attitude. Black Adam. Uh, we know at least one, one iteration of Black Adam came from the far future back to the past in preparation to, to fight this great darkness. And so what better leader could we ask for than Black Adam right now? And him stepping up to the plate, I think, is is an awesome idea. And uh, I don't know exactly what will happen, but this series, this issue ends with uh, Kyle Rayner showing up out of the blue, uh, out of uh, he's apparently in a spaceship. I don't know how Kyle Rayner, Rayner ended up there out of the pages of Green Lantern number 12, but the continuity is a little wonky, but it ends up Hal Jordan and Joe Mielane of uh, Green Lanterns are rescuing Kyle Rayner on on a ship outside of Earth orbit, and Hal Jordan has brought the Green Lantern Corps to help with the fight, and they offer Kyle Rayner the ring, and they're going to go and look for the Great Darkness. And man, uh, I love this issue. I, I, I don't. It's this. This feels different than your. This has a different feel to it. I want to give Joshua Williamson credit for this. Feels like a, a crisis. It, it feels different. It, it because it feels. 
this issue in particular felt grounded in character. I felt the character of John Kent, of Nightwing, even with Kyle Rayner, of Hal Jordan, of uh, of, of of Deathstroke, and uh, you know, I like this. I'm I'm actually I I'm this is this is really sort of building to something, and we got another. This is only issue two. And so much is, I, I feel a lot's happened. And I, I like how this is organically built up over the last year. And, and maybe this is going to go in a direction I don't like. But right now, I, I'm, I, I got a shit-eating green on my face. So um, I'm happy. I'm happy. What about you? Wow, that was a lot. Uh, I guess I read a different comic. You say a lot <laughs> happened. I feel like nothing's happened. We don't know how Pariah is empowered. We don't know how he got recruited. We haven't seen the great darkness itself. I mean, I can't, I mean, this is supposed to be the crisis to end all crises. Right. And I can't help, but compare it to crisis on infinite earths from back in the day. And I think, what did we have there after two issues? Well, a hell of a lot more than we've got here. Yeah. You mentioned that it doesn't feel like it, it feels different. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a crisis. We have character moments. Yeah. That's great. This is dark crisis. When I see the word crisis, that means big. <laughs> I would argue that stories that we're not maybe enjoying as much as we could, like uh, whatever's going on in Nubia, is bigger in scope than this. DC versus vampires is bigger in scope than this. This is supposed to be the biggest story going on in the DC universe right now. And I feel like I, I, I haven't seen anything. I don't know anything. I don't care because I haven't been told to care. Yeah, it's, it's a cool moment to see John, you know, save Nightwing. That was great. Hey, you know, you have your dad's timing. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, seeing the, the green, the you know, the beautiful Daniel Samper art with the Green Lantern splash page with Kilowog and Hal Jordan and everybody at the end. Yeah, that, that's, that's an awesome moment. But it has no context. Nothing in the story has any context. The only thing that I understand, and you alluded to it, is that, yeah, clearly something's going on with Deathstroke whether it's the Lazarus pits, whether it's some influence that Pariah has over him. He's, he's, <laughs> he doesn't, he says one thing one second and the next second he says the exact opposite. Clearly the guy's like in some sort of Jekyll and Hyde state. So what's going on there? Uh, I'm sick and tired of seeing Titan's tower blow up. I don't care if Titan tower, <laughs> like you just blew it up in the regular series. So why should I give a shit that you blew it up again? And they even allude to it. It's like, you guys blow it up and then rebuild it the next issue. It doesn't have any impact. Nothing in this issue has any impact for me. And yet it's supposed to be the biggest story that's going on right now in the DCU. Like it just, I keep waiting for the big stuff to start. I mean, it would be inaccurate to say there haven't been any consequences so far. Cause obviously the justice league is dead, but yet just like with the way, uh, you know, John Kent feels about or Damien. Ah, yeah, but they've all been killed before and they've come back every time. So I'm not really that worried about it. That's sort of what this that encapsulates the feeling of this whole series, right? Everything's been done before. The, the heroes have been killed before and they're brought back. This Hollow Justice destroyed and Scott Snyder's Justice League. Ah, it's back a few issues later. Titans Towers destroyed. It's back. Now it's destroyed again. But we know it'll come back. Changeling shot in the face. Suppose they're going to kill him. Oh, just kidding. Bait and switch. It's actually just going to leave a scar. Like, why should I care about any of this stuff? Because there's no consequences to anything. And, and you know, cool character moments are fine, but 
that's not enough to sustain an entire narrative. And we haven't gotten, I haven't gotten any answers. I don't know what the hell is going on in the DC universe anymore. I really don't. From the time Scott Snyder broke the source wall, I feel like the whole thing has been convoluted in a mess. You can, everything counts, but nothing counts. You can do whatever you want, shift around and the timeline doesn't make any sense. Like, and this, this to me, this series so far is just more indicative of that. Williamson can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants to do it to, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day because everything counts and nothing counts. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe it's not fair for me to put all the blame on Williamson for this because it's more indicative of what I think is wrong with the DC universe as a whole. I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. It just, it doesn't work. We've, you and I have said it a hundred times. If everything counts, then nothing counts. Everything contradicts everything. Heroes are killed, but they're just going to come back. I mean, remember what a big deal it was when Superman died? It was on like the local news and people lined up around the block to get Superman 75. Nobody cared about Justice League 75 that they died because we all know they're going to come back. And here's the other thing. They're not even really dead. Is Batman dead? How can Batman be dead? We just talked about like four or five Batman comics tonight. Right? Mm -hmm. We talked about Superman last week and Wonder Woman last week. They're not really dead. Because they're not dead in the whole DCU. Because again, nothing lines up in continuity. Yeah. So well, I, know, I just I, well, I would just give a little bit of just a little bit of uh, pushback. Uh, first of all, I, I'm surprised that you that at the extent to which you you this is has rubbed you the wrong way. Uh, only because I, uh, I like I want to defend this a bit because. One thing that I will give Joshua Williamson for is that if you've just been reading Joshua William comics, Williamson's comics, and you're reading, you've read Infinite Frontier, Justice League Incarnate, and you're starting to read Dark Crisis, and and you, and you followed his Robin and Deathstroke, uh, there's there's consistency there, and so I I very much disagree with you when you say this is without context. I I think I think con- I think it has lots where, of context. Where, Rocky, when I say I, context, I, I don't know what what, 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 what do you mean? When, what what's okay, when missing? I say context? When I say context, what is the dark crisis? Explain to me what the dark crisis is. Explain to me who the dark crisis is. Who the great darkness is. Explain to me what his end goal is. Do we know any oh, no, of that? No, fair enough. We we don't know. We don't know we what don't the know shit. We, we know, know nothing. Well, well, okay. Well, look. <laughs> if if you're not into the, I mean, the the great darkness wants everything to be just nothingness. I mean, so basically, it's manipulating Pariah, and it's manipulating it's manipulating Pariah, who in turn is manipulating Deathstroke, and in turn is manipulating everybody to ultimately move to great darkness. We know that Pariah is being, I'm sure, fooled okay, so by the great darkness. Okay. So that's that that's so what we, manipulating to move to a great darkness. So manipulating Pariah and Deathstroke to erase everything. They don't have the power to do that. Well, well, we don't know exactly how the great darkness is going to do that. I mean, that's still that's still an open question. And, and we, we, we know that the great darkness has within itself dark side and Necron and and uh, Eclipso and, and Doomsday and all those other. We, we know that great the great army, the great dark army is there as well. To what end exactly the purpose of this is, we don't know. But 
I mean, I don't know if I mean, I don't know if we need that much more context than that. It's it's a great evil that we know it's disappeared off the playing field. It's it's now gone and it's it's building up to something. At some point, it's going to attack. Why 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 does Pariah need the? Why doesn't Pariah want to take the heroes out? Why is he letting the heroes live? Because apparently they need to live for some other purpose. He believes that the infinite, if the infinite, if the infinite crisis, if the infinite wor- Earths are going to be reinstated. What's 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 the great dark? Or maybe they maybe the dark army wants or the great darkness wants to create an infinite earths, an infinite dark earths or something like I mean, I don't know at this point to me that that sort of speculation is fun. I don't I mean, the true motives of the villain, the, the true end game is yet to be revealed. I wouldn't say that's lacking context. We're just lacking an answer. I think there's a difference. No, I, 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 dis- I disagree. It's one thing to know their plan. I'm not asking for the plan. We don't know anything. You said to yourself, oh, the, dark, the great darkness wants to erase everything. It wants there to be nothingness. But it's at the same time, you're saying, you, you said yourself, oh, but Pariah thinks that the, in, you know, the multiverse, infinite multiverse is going to be restored. Well, those two things are diametrically opposed. So is Pariah just a fucking idiot that he's going along with the great darkness who's telling him, hey, I'm going to restore everything. But we, we know the great darkness wants to erase everything. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it I'm doesn't make any sense it, yet. One, but well, it's one thing It's one thing to speculate when you're given some clues. We aren't even given any clues. We know nothing. We know nothing other than, hey, the great darkness is a big threat. We don't even know how to fight it. We don't even I, – I, I, I don't know. It's just it's – not, it's not working for me. We're getting a okay, lot of fair enough, little – Fair enough. Things. I can. We're getting a lot of little puzzle pieces, but we're getting none of the big picture. Yeah, and I think I, that's a failure. And I, I'm a Williamson fan, and I will agree with you. If you read just the Joshua Williamson stuff, then yeah, there aren't contradictions in the story. But we read all the DC stuff, and the fact of the matter is Batman comics are still coming out. Wonder Woman comics are still coming out. Superman comics are still coming out. They're not dead. They're not dead. No, so again, it makes it, it makes it hard to care because it doesn't seem like this story fits into the bigger overall DCU. And I go back – to what I said, ever since Scott Snyder broke the source wall, DC continuity has been fucked, and it, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And honestly, I'm just kind of sick and tired of it, to be honest with you. You know, if you yeah. can't tell, I'm 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 over it. Like, can we get somebody in there that can make some editorial decisions that make sense? Because it used to be, you know, granted it was never perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. But at least it made sense, and at least you had somebody in there that was saying, "No, it can't be this in one comic if it's this in the other comic." Yeah, but now I, they just want to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Yeah. And as a longtime DC fan, I don't, I don't appreciate that. It's lazy. Yeah. It's lazy, is what it is. Well, I, I, again, I, I, there's good character moments in here. There's a lot of things that don't make any sense to me, and I go back. I stand by my my statement that I don't feel there's any any context. I have no. We're getting one side of the story. We're getting the hero side, and they're getting their asses handed to them by the secret society of supervillains who are in turn being powered up by Pariah, who in turn is being powered up by uh, the Great Darkness. But based on the behavior of Deathstroke, who's highly unstable, um, we don't we don't know why anybody's doing other, anything other than well because the Great Darkness said so. That's not a good enough reason to build a story around. And maybe we'll get there, and maybe I'll eat my words, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope I love this in the end. 
But right now it's not working for me. I feel like, you know, after the first issue, I was like, okay, set up, let, hopefully it gets better after the second issue. We got a fight between Nightwing and Deathstroke. We got a fight between uh, John Kent and Cyborg Superman. We got Black Adam showing up going, John Kent, you suck at putting a team together. I'll take over. And we got Hal Jordan reuniting with Kyle Rayner. That's it. That's it. How, what what part of that gives us any context for Pariah, for Great Darkness, for – I mean, I have no idea where the story's going. None. And maybe maybe some people like that. I like at least some clues. I like – again, I go back to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. A couple of issues in, I understood who the anti-monitor was and what he wanted and why he wanted it. Maybe Williamson's you know building his narrative in a different way, but I think it's a mistake. We – how I mean, he's been building this for years, and we still don't haven't even seen the dark, the great darkness. Is he is it an entity? Is he formless? Is he shapeless? Does he have a humanoid form? Like, yeah, it's it's interesting that that Pariah at the beginning says that the Monitor gifted him the teleportation device that can transport. Uh, them to Earth Zero. So that makes me wonder, is the Monitor on the side of Pariah? Because the Monitor was trying to protect the infinite Earths in the original crisis. Yeah, well, yeah, well, the Monitor since came, yeah, he's been back and reborn along with the Anti-Monitor since then. So, uh, but yeah, there's definitely, there's there's a whole slew of questions here. I will say that, you know, look, for, for action, for, for sheer action, this issue had quite a bit, had quite a bit. And the art was so fantastic. I mean, uh, full props to uh, Daniel Simper, I mean, uh, and Alejandro Sanchez on the, co- on the colors. I, I, it was really impressive. The, the scenes and, and the facial expressions on Nightwing and Deathstroke and, and, and Superman, uh, John Kent, uh, and Cyborg Superman. Th- this was really a stellar issue. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing this in the actual physical form, not just uh, not just the digital form. So um, I'm going to be really curious to see how this. Uh, I, I I'm excited to see where this goes. I, I really am because uh, Joshua Williamson. I in Joshua in Joshua. I have come to trust and. Uh, I know he's feeling a lot of pressure and, but you know, look, one of the things that really disappointed me, I thought the scenes at Titans tower here, I thought they were visceral. I thought they were graphic. I felt the violence when I saw this in a way that I never felt when like in teen Titans Academy, that terrible series that, that unfortunately took the gravitas away from this series. We shouldn't have had, you know, all that nonsense with red X and teen Titans Academy and the destroying teen Titans Academy to have the same sort of destruction take place here that should never have taken place in the pages of Teen Titans Academy with Red X to begin with because it sort of robbed the gravitas here. But that just goes to the larger – that's almost a separate discussion in terms of the editorial decision-making and, and in the very poor coordination between the titles and uh, the story directions of the various titles. But uh, but in any event, uh, we shall see. I sincerely hope that the future issues will bring you back on board, Jace. <laughs> It feels like a small story. It really does. And it shouldn't feel like that. It should feel like a crisis. Yeah. Um, But I will say that anybody who decides to rebuild Titan's tower again should move to Gotham city because they're not (laughs) there. I I put them in with the same. 
uh, you know, level of intelligence of anybody who continues to live in Gotham. You might as well go to Gotham Academy. It's a little safer. Just a little. Yeah, just idiotic. So anyway, uh, some collections that are coming out today as well. We've got uh, Batman Urban's Legends Trade Paperback Volume 2, which collects issues 7 through 10. We have uh, Birds of Prey, Whitewater Trade Paperback, which collects the series from the 90s, uh, numbers 104 through 112. We've got a Catwoman Trade Paperback that collects the Fear State issues, 34 through 38. We've got Green Lantern Trade Paperback, Volume 2. This is the second uh, volume of uh, Jeffrey Thorne's run on Green Lantern, so it collects numbers 5 through 12 and annual from 2021. Then we've got the Justice League Infinity trade paperback that obviously collects the Justice League Infinity numbers one through seven, which is a continuation of the Justice League cartoon. And finally, Suicide Squad Get Joker hardcover, which collects the black label numbers one through three of Suicide Squad Get Joker. Uh, Unfortunately, Amanda Connor doesn't stay dead. So uh, that's it for this week. didn't you know said Amanda Connor. You mean you mean Amanda Waller? Amanda Waller. Sorry, Amanda Waller. Apologies, Apologies to, Amanda. to Amanda Connor, Yeah, I uh, would never wish anything uh, bad to happen to Amanda Connor ever. She's a treasure. Uh, she's one of the best people I know. Now, I'm not saying in comics. She's yeah. one of the nicest people I know. Um, one of the nicest people I've ever met ever. So, uh, anyway, didn't know this one was going to be three hours. Apologize for the length, everybody. We really went deep on Dark Crisis. Uh, maybe subconsciously I didn't want to talk about it. Maybe that's why I skipped it. So anyway, anything to add as we're wrapping up here, Rock? Uh, no, it's just, a, it's just a, it's a big week. It was a big week this week and uh, happy reading people. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was tough choices uh, this week for, for comics. There was a lot of good ones, uh, but I would have to I would have to give my uh, my favorite comic this week as uh, a tie between uh, I liked Flashpoint Beyond issue three and I really liked Dark Crisis number two. What, what about you? Yeah, Dark Crisis number two uh, at the bottom of my list. Yeah, <laughs> it was so. Uh, no. it, it wasn't the worst comic, but it's not nowhere near the top for me. Flashpoint Beyond, yeah. I'll agree, was was pretty outstanding. Uh, so I, I give my nod to that. As, uh, as the best book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the contrast between those two is so interesting to me. Flashpoint Beyond, two issues in, it feels big. It feels like a mystery. It feels like there's a lot of questions to be solved. And then this third issue, we take a swerve and add in all this Superman stuff and Kryptonians as conquerors heading toward Earth. Um, and it, it, But it, it works, as opposed to we're two issues into Dark Crisis and I feel like nothing's happened. And granted, we've had a lot of fights and we've had, you know, character moments, but in terms of advancing the main story, it feels like it hasn't even gotten started yet. So uh, just, you know, a difference in style between how Williamson's trying to tell the story versus what Jeff Johns is doing. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. You know, all the usual stuff. Head over to YouTube, like Rocky's uh, or subscribe to Rocky's channel, comic space, boom, exclamation point. Like this video, comment. Uh, subscribe to the channel, ring the notification bell so you know when new content comes out. If you want to hear our audio-only content over on the Comic Source side of things, just tune in to the Comic Source on your favorite podcast app or podcast platform on your smart device and subscribe. Uh, spoiler-free comic book, New Comic Wednesdays every week, tons of interviews that I've been doing lately, including the aforementioned Gene Yang interview this week. So uh, we appreciate you guys joining and supporting as always. If you made it to the end, hey, thanks for hanging with us for three hours, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later.
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.